Steve and Kevin review Ravnica Allegiance for Vintage on episode 87 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 87 of So Many Insane Plays, our Ravnica Allegiance review show. Woot woot. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hello, everyone. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, you can tweet us at Many Insane Plays, email us at So Many Insane Plays Podcast at gmail.com, or leave feedback on Eternal Central, MTG Cast, or TheManadrain.com. Of note, MTG Cast recently had an outage and lost most of their supporting information for our show and, and every other show. What that means is all of the content for the text and the name of the show and all that information. Fortunately, they did not lose the critical part, which is the actual audio files. So MTG Cast is in the process of repopulating all of their shows, including ours, by going to all the show hosts and saying, all right, claim your show, make sure you identify yourself, here's all the audio, but they don't have all the supporting text now. So you could just have... Oh my god, the, the blurbs yeah, are gone? The blurbs are gone, they those, recreated the show title. It's titles. really an art to writing yeah, those blurbs that you've perfected. <laughs> I know, it's really sad. So what we're going to do is, now that they're, they're getting their site back up and running, and so they've got all the audio, and if you, you can go to our show and see all the episodes. They recreated the episode names based on the files, which fortunately I named with the same naming convention. And so it's all back there, and the RSS should be working, but... If you go to the shows on their site, you won't see the text. I'm going to try to work with them to repopulate that, but that's going to take a while with 80-plus episodes. Well, there's a there's a silver lining to this, mm-hmm. which is that all of our episodes, all of our shows are archived on Eternal Central. And mm-hmm. I don't think we've announced this, Kevin, but there was kind of a big development with that archive recently. Right. It's actually a pretty amazing development. Do you want yeah, to share go it? Ahead. No, go ahead. All right. So, you know, we've been recording since, oh God, it was uh, sl- since our fourth episode was Slash Panther, so it must have been... <laughs> 2011 or 2010 it's been we've been doing this we started in 2010 yeah with the time vault episode um about a year ago someone came up to us and pointed out that a number of shows were missing maybe even more than a year ago yeah that uh episodes uh what was it uh five yeah single digits 11 12 yeah a couple of teens yeah about half of our first 20 about maybe six of the first 15 episodes had just vanished Mm -hmm. mtg cast lost the file um, you you didn't have them because you switched machines a number of times mm-hmm. since <laughs> since that. So, and I just thought they were gone forever. Jason Jaco, entrepreneur, man of the hour, <laughs> most interesting man in the world, VSL teammate. Yeah, he did a call out on Twitter, and lo and behold, some of you, our audience, I wish we could specifically credit you. Uh, apparently, had downloaded them. <laughs> And uh, they're all here. So every single episode's been updated on Eternal Central from mm-hmm. episode one. And I haven't heard so many people do this lately, but in the last four or five years, I've had countless people come up and say, I love your show. I've started from the beginning. Yeah. I, like I went back and listened to all the original shows because the original shows really are pretty darn good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so the, it's the, fun. The first episode one is actually a really good history lesson in Time Vault. Yeah. And, and, and Power Level Arata too. Mm-hmm. We had a great mm-hmm. exegesis on that. Um, 
So the those sh- and of course the uh, scenario shows are timeless. So that's <laughs> cool. Yep. Yep. Uh, so all the old shows are now on the Eternal Central Archive, and they have the original blurbs to Kevin. So, so it's, if, you, you if just you have are- to you go to Kevin, you go to Eternal Central and search for Kevin Crone. That's right. And you'll see them all. Um, every single one of them. Uh, minor footnote: I have a minor, I have an apology to make. Mm. Uh, I've been using a headset for the show for a long time. We switched programs, and apparently, my, my the audio recorder program was recording from my computer as opposed to my headset for the last couple episodes. So it, I've sounded really tinny. Uh, we've hopefully corrected that this episode. That's <laughs> happened in the past, but you know, we've switched so many different programs through this show. So right. hopefully, that's corrected. Apologies. We're we're better than that, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we're always here for continuous improvement, and we will right. continue to be so. And, and and our last episode was the show, the year in review with our moxies. If you missed that, check it out. Uh, I feel p- just I actually want to give a footnote to that, Kevin. One mm-hmm. of the most controversial moxies we gave was the deck of the year, and I fam- uh, infamously awarded it to shops, despite the fact that uh, it was an interesting debate we had, right, for d- right. for deck of the year, right, uh, between PO and shops, where PO had won two of the five marquee events, but but shops had won twice as many of the vintage challenges. And won one of the bigger events, and at the end, and had more higher percentage of top eights overall. The interesting footnote that I thought I would share is that at the end of the year, we noted that PO kind of peaked at the very tail of the year, the end of the calendar year. Uh, we'd seen a lot of oscillation with PO, but PO in December of 2018 was 35% of top eights, with shops and Xerox at 23%. Uh, Kevin, interesting note. You want to make a prediction? Guess what PO's January numbers were uh, of 2019. It, was it down to like 10% or something? Bingo, 9%. Oh, wow. So it went from <laughs> 35% to 9%. <laughs> Holy moly. <laughs> now, part, of course, part of that is living through the Lavinia era. Uh, shops, 31% of top eights in January. Mm. Xerox, mostly rug, a little bit of just guy, 25%. Dredge nine percent, Bug nine percent, Eldrazi nine percent, O three percent, so and Survival three percent. That's a hundred percent. Interesting. So so uh, shops thirty one percent of of top eights open the year big in January, mm-hmm. validating my uh, my side of the argument there. <laughs> Even though it's technically not because we were talking about deck of the year for twenty eighteen. Right. But we did anticipate that there was a very high chance that that was going to be one, the possible future was going to be a retraction in the popularity of PO. But we and also thought it might. It. Ju- we also thought it might just persist, and then it might need to be restricted. But it's basically collapsed <laughs> from thirty-five to nine percent. Very interesting. So far, to be continued. <laughs> yeah, the vintage metagame is a little fickle lately. <laughs> All right, so let's move on with our announcements. For upcoming tournaments, I am pleased to report that Proxy Vintage is coming to Grand Rapids, Michigan on February 24th, which is a Sunday in a couple of weeks. We're holding our first ever Proxy Vintage event at the Gaming Warehouse in Granville. Now, that information... Ooh, I like I've, Granville. What's that? I like Granville. <laughs> well, so do Gran- I. Granville, Ohio, of course. Oh, oh, well, okay. A little less so, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you were going there with that. Um, so I'm happy to report that this should be a recurring event here in Grand Rapids. We're going to partner with 
our tournament organizers in Battle Creek and in RIW in Livonia and make sure that we don't overlap. So like trying to be good citizens of the area of vintage metagame and, and really try to promote the, the continued success of all three locations. And so come out if you are the sort of person who is in the Grand Rapids area or hasn't been to Battle Creek or Livonia or down in Indy, then please, please do come out to the Grand Rapids tournament and support the local metagame. And if anybody you know or yourself needs a deck, I'm happy to help you out. Steve, anything upcoming in your neck of the woods? Definitely. Um, a couple things. Number one, Eudaimonia Games in Berkeley has their February Vintage event on Sunday, February 17th. Fortunately, that's Valentine's Day weekend, so I personally won't be able to make it, but mm. definitely should show up if you can. It's awesome. I mean, you don't get a chance to play Paper Vintage very often, and uh, there's some great players who sh- typically show up, like... Um, Sperling? Uh, Matt Sperling, Eric Virgo. Mm-hmm. You know, we get some great players, so, um, you know, sh- definitely come if you can. Sling some, sling some paper. Another cool event I've got coming up a little bit further out is going to be March 4th at the Albatross Pub, which is the spitting image of the Child and Eagle in, in Oxford, England, you know, <laughs> where the famous pub where J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, you know, based the spotting, po- the prancing pony from Lord of the Rings and also <laughs> wrote a lot of his Lord, of, you know, got insp- inspiration for his series. Cool. Um, March 4th, we're having Old School 97. Act one, Visions. So it'll be old school through Visions. I'm giving away some cool prizes. Uh, Vampiric Tutor and Prosperity will be restricted so that Mana Vault and Mana Crypt can be unrestricted. Hmm. Mana Crypt unrestricted? Mana Crypt unrestricted. Power Artifact will also be restricted and Necropotence is restricted as well as Mystical Tutor. Wow. So... I can't help but feel that unrestricted mana crypt is somehow a mistake. <laughs> Actually, that will be one of the things that we'll talk about in just a few moments, but let's get through the rest of the... <laughs> <laughs> All right. Fantastic. So we should give a, a key update on the VSL, right? At the time of this recording, we find ourselves between the first two rounds. That is, everyone has already played once in their pod in the first four weeks. First semester's over. First semester's over, yep. And we're about to start our next semester. So we can have some good reflection and an update on the status of things. Uh, in an effort not to bury the lead, Steve, you and I are both two and one, which is good and so there's positions 16, us well. So there's 16 players in this tournament, mm-hmm. and there are two three and O's. Mm-hmm. That is Randy Bueller and Seth Manfield. And what is it, seven two and ones? <laughs> Yep, so Steve, you and I, plus Andreas Peterson, Rich Shea, Rachel Agnes, Cyrus Cormangill, and Annie Markiton. And then five, one, and, oh, sorry, four, one, and twos. Yep, Brassman, then, Brian Kelly, Saffron Olivan, Matt Sperling are at one, two. And then three, zero, threes. That's Bob Marr, Aaron Campbell, and Brian Koval. And they are the only three that are eliminated from playoffs. That's right. So the No one's guaranteed to be in the playoffs so far. That's right. No one, no one can be at this point. So for those who don't know, the playoffs are structured such that anyone who achieves four wins inside of their first two rounds is in. Anyone who's undefeated with six wins will have a bye into the finals. That's which, nice. I've been there yeah, before. <laughs> yeah. And that is still possible for Randy or Seth. All of us who are 2-1 or 1-2 are technically still live for the playoff. So there's, there's just going to be a lot of competitive action um, in this next round where nearly everyone is live week over week. So we only have three people at 03. And it'll be interesting, too, one of the fun tensions, I think, of 
those three who are O3, what they bring to the table in their particular pods because they have nothing to lose effectively so they can play whatever wild or or <laughs> Ill, potentially ill-advised deck they, <laughs> they wish. So it should be pretty entertaining. Now, the round two schedule sounds like this. February 12th, the next week, is Cyrus, Seth, Andy, and Andreas, all of whom are live for the playoffs. Next week, February 19th, is Brassman, Aaron Campbell, me, and Randy Bueller, which is an interesting group because Randy's one of the three O's, Aaron's one of the right. O's threes, and so there'll be an interesting tension. Randy's going to be pushing for that undefeated record, and Aaron is free to do whatever she likes. <laughs> but by the way, just on the on the week one of of the second semester, um, all those players have winning records. Oh, that's a good point. So, so that's that's a really in terms of the wins that that cohort has the most number of wins mm-hmm. at. I think it's eleven wins. <laughs> no, it's not. It's uh, nine wins. Nine wins. Yeah. Yeah. And um, what's interesting is Seth Manfield at three zero might not even make the playoffs. It's, I mean, the the spread of possibilities is it's interesting. With four players, the spread of possibilities are that you have no more than one player can go three zero, mm-hmm. right? But you can have one player go three zero, and and all other three go one and one and two, mm-hmm. or you can have a three zero, a two one, a one two, or in a zero three. Or you can have what are the other possibilities? That's I've just named three. I think there's one other where you oh it's you have um, two one and twos one and two two ones. Is that the other possibility? I, I'm not following you very well, but I take your meaning exactly, I'm which is that to, there's a div- <laughs> quite a diversity of potential outcomes here, and yes. no one is sure to have any particular outcome. Well, in a in a six round night with four players, where each player pl- in round robin. There's only a limited number of outcomes. I was right. just trying to articulate all the possible outcomes. Right, right. <laughs> the spread of outcomes. It's like the the possible gift piles. <laughs> to put it in vintage terms. Yep. So so it's possible that Seth might go zero three. Uh, yep. and, and miss the playoffs from three oh, yep. That would and be all the other players not all the other players can make the playoffs though. So so if if player let's say Seth goes zero three, one of the other players can go three oh and another player can go two and one. But the other two of the players will not make the playoffs. Yeah. So these, it's interesting. The tension Sorry, that's there. Not, it, well, as long as Seth goes zero three, <laughs> right, if, right? If if Seth actually wins a match, then three of those four players can make the playoffs. Right. So they're all incentivized to play consistent decks because because Seth just needs one win to make the playoffs. So he just wants something that's going to you know have the greatest chance of a single win. But the others still need to put it together a two one or better. So they, they're all incentivized to play strong, consistent decks, which means it could be a very competitive with very little spice kind of evening. Right. As opposed to, for example, the third week, February 26th, Brian Koval at 03, Bob Marr at 03, <laughs> Brian Kelly at 1-2, and Rachel Agnes at 2-1. So there you have the opposite end of the spectrum. You have two players who are, who are mathematically eliminated from the playoffs and can, as such, showboat as much as they want. And then Rachel and Brian, who need consistent showings. Well, Brian needs a wow. 3 0 to make the so, playoff. So, B- Brian, yeah, Brian can still make the playoffs, though. Yeah. Uh-huh. So, interesting. Wow. Yeah. And that'll, then, be a, that'll be a, that'll the wild be a wild one. That'll be a wild one. Yeah. yeah. That'll probably be the wildest one to watch. <laughs> yeah. It'll be really fun. And then the it's fourth a minefield. Week, and then the fourth week that you're in, Steve, another interesting scenario, which is very middle of the road. The, the most middle of the road group. You right. and Rich Shea at two and one. And Saffron Olive and Matt Swirling at one and two, everyone's still alive, but there's much more uniformity in records there, the most possible. So just to summarize, 
the round one pod has nine wins. Mm-hmm. The round two pod has has the, sorry the round uh, three pod has three wins. <laughs> That's a huge difference. Yes, it is. It's <laughs> and pretty the cool. Round, and the round four pod of the week round semester two round four has four wins, which yep. is my pod, which is still strong. No, your I mean, pod has six wins, Steve, not four. I'm six. sorry, it has six yeah. wins, right? Yeah. Six wins. Um, so you go three, six, <laughs> six, and nine. Yeah, nine. Yep. So anyway, the long and the, the long and the short of it is there's still excitement and different exciting dynamics to be had each of the next four weeks of the VSL. And we will be identifying some playoff contenders in each one of those weeks. Definitely. So it'll be interesting. And if you haven't been following along, there's uh, Hipsters of the Coast has set up this fantasy league scenario where you can, I guess, pick your players you think are going to win for the week and, and also for the season. So it's too late to enroll for the season, I believe. But that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Andreas per- Peterson has had some pretty amazing predictions. He's been off by I think like one match yeah. every yeah. every time so far. <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, he had predicted me at one two, and so I'm very grateful to have been the one that stymied his prediction this past I think week. He, I think he did the exact same thing for me. Yeah, he might have even predicted zero three for me. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was one and two. I knew yeah. that your deck was not an O three deck. There's no way. <laughs> Even on the Lavinia litmus test evening. That's right. That's right. Other thoughts on the VSL, Steve? Well, there's. Uh, we'll definitely bring up some plays that have come up during the scenarios episode mm-hmm. um, for deeper analysis. The next scenario episode, but I did want to point out one, a couple interesting things about my match, my my uh, first round. So I played PO uh, on the Lavinia night. Um, what f- folks didn't know. So first. I'll point out three different games quickly. Um, in the first match against Randy, I misclicked horribly when Vampiric <laughs> Tutoring, and I was trying to get Tinker, instead I got Talarian Academy, which was just awful. And they're like, huh, he's going really conservative. <laughs> um, it wouldn't really, have worked out. I just, I just want to point out that it, re- it really blows my mind, the interface on Magic Online for tutoring. Like, <sighs> it's just pixel width height of card titles it's, yes. it's so frustrating i always yeah. I, be, because i've seen have, it happen before but you have because to of your example i always expand it and i also yeah. right click on the card first yeah. to make sure that i've it has selected the one i wanted and then it says choose this card so i always click twice so i don't have yeah. that mistake well i've been playing on magic online vintage on magic online since vintage came on mm-hmm. and I don't remember that ever happening to me before, so it's kind of embarrassing that it happened on the VSL, but that's that's the stage in which it would happen. Yeah. And it wouldn't have worked because Randy ended up having Pyroblast. Had I known that he had Pyroblast, I should have just gotten Mentor, and I would have won that game, I believe. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the good news is I did actually get I tutored for Mentor, I think, in the next game, or one of the <laughs> other games, and I, I did win that game, but I ended up losing that particular match. Right. Had I gone for Mentor there, I might have been able to win that match. Um. The other weird thing that happened during that game, or the, sorry, during that evening, was uh, I mulliganed to six and played a huge balance for like down to two cards with no land on mm-hmm. turn one against one of my opponents. Um, and uh, in watching the replay, players were like, how lucky he drew a mox when I had like an opal in play and a lotus. Yeah. I scried the mox on top. So Naturally. So people didn't uh, didn't know that. Um, <laughs> so I knew what I was drawing the next turn, and that's why I didn't tutor because they were they were saying, "Why didn't you tutor?" If I tutored, I would have shuffled that mox that I needed to draw. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, the other thing 
the other thing that was really deep was in my game one against Brian Koval, where I lost, but I did win that match. Um, on the last turn, I saw Mystical Tutor with top. I was topping turn after turn, and I had seen a lot of mostly lands, and I drew them. I'd seen another top. Had I topped instead of another land and drawn the second top, on the final turn of the game, I would have been able to Mystical Tutor for balance. Mystical Tutor, activate top to draw balance. Sorry, let me rephrase that. (laughs) On the final turn of the game, if I had had two tops in play, and I played a lot of PO, but I've never needed two tops before, Kevin. (laughs) I I saw Mystical with with top. I would have been able to Mystical, uh, activate top to draw Mystical. Mystical to find balance, activate the second top to draw balance and play it, and I think I would have won that game because it would have wiped him out completely, and I would have had top on top. So yeah. I would have, and and I already crypted him, I believe. So his graveyard was gone. Um, but I just never had a, a heuristic where I needed two tops in play. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. I I can honestly say I don't think I've ever had that issue either. And but now in the future. You're going to think about that every time you see the second top, right? Is, yes. this, the, is this the time, right? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, there's definitely some stuff to talk about, uh, especially in my match against Randy, mm-hmm. but that will be a topic for a scenarios episode. Yeah, I love scenarios like that, that w- they come up the first time you can kind of write them off because your heuristics say this is not important or this is not a winning line or whatever. Yeah. And it, and then it turns out to be critically important. And now every time in the future, you're going <laughs> to, it's going to spike in your memory. That's that second that, time. That's the whole point of pattern recognition. Yeah. It's, I love it. I love it. So let's move on and talk about some article updates. Then you've got a, a nice BNR article. Yes. Yes. Uh, we teased this in our last show. Uh, it, so January 26th, 2019 is the 25th, basically 25th birthday of Vintage. Mm-hmm. Um, the 25th anniversary of the creation of the Duelist Convocation Mandatory Ban and Restricted List for Constructed Magic. It's the format that became Type One. Mm-hmm. In, in essence, when Type One and, and when Type One and Type Two was created, Type One and Type Two shared the same Ban and Restricted List, which was the restricted list that was created in, in January 26, 1994. But the difference was that the the pool of legal sets for type one was the same as that was as existed under just constructed magic. So mm-hmm. it's not so much a separation of formats, which is kind of what I like in a literary sense, like to call it, as it was they carved out a new format called type two, which shared the same ban and restricted list for mm-hmm. a while. Um, and I wrote this really long article about it. It's a freebie for it's basically my schools of magic hint- history of vintage series which is becoming a book and for those of you who are curious what's the progress on the book all the chapters have been updated on my end the editor eternal central jaco has not updated them on the website and once he does we're going to compile them into the book which is really cool so i have tons of updates expanded all the chapters it's all done all in the can just waiting on jaco if you want to you want to uh get that done pester jaco it's 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 like 800 pages probably bigger so we're going to get that into a book but i've done a couple of free articles promoting the series and spinning off topics on the series so since the series is a year by year history you know it obviously obviously lends itself to specialized topics so i did uh, a history of the star city games power 9 series and i did this which was a history of the banned and restricted list right mm-hmm. and I didn't want to just do a history of the banned and restricted list, Kevin. I wanted to do an alternative history. Which, yeah. So you, you have my interest. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, 
what I did was, first of all, there have been, counting the original announcement, there have been 40 changes to the banned and restricted list, counting the initial formulation. So over 25 years, there have been 40 changes. There have been 96 restrictions and 50 unrestrictions, which leaves us mathematically with Mm -hmm. a 46-card restricted list. Mm Mm-hmm. The peak of the restricted, the largest ever restricted list was 54 cards on January 1st, 2004. So we're pretty far from that historical peak. So this assumption that the vintage restricted list would just gradually grow through the accretion of sets and is, is not proven true. Yeah. Which is awesome. It's not a, I always hated the notion that the vintage restricted list is a rogues gallery, <laughs> like it's Arkham Asylum or something. Right. You yeah, know? you just every time there's a mistake, you just add that to the list and move yes. on, right? I hate that because it should always be contact sensitive. There are cards that can be rehabilitated and you let the Joker out. <laughs> well, not the Joker, but <laughs> right? Uh, yes. I just I can't shake the notion of which card is the Joker in this context. <laughs> well, think about it. I mean, like Thirst for Knowledge is like the most dominant draw engine in the history of the format. And yet it's safely unrestricted. In 2009, it was like 45% of top eights. Mm-hmm. And now it's barely played. It's like extremely marginal, right? Right. And Factor uh, Fiction before it. Factor Fiction. like to- So so what I did in this article was a lot of things. It's really long. It's 10,000 words. Yikes. And I want to highlight a couple things. <laughs> so what I did was, number one, is I explained at every one of those 40 points what happened. I described why it happened. And I provided some data where data was available. And I quote, you know, obviously using the resources that I have from my series, I quote Beth Morsan, the DCI, various people, and you know, what actually happened to exp- elaborate. And there's some interesting debates, like the debate over Maze of Ith's restriction in 1994 <laughs> was so incredibly contentious. There's a long back and forth between the net rep and the player base who was incredibly irritated at this restriction. Well, and please tell a- me that was on Usenet. It was. It was. I'm not going to spoil it. I want people to read the article ab- about that. But people just relentlessly mocked the net rep about that. Like, uh, well, why is Maze restricted? Then why not the Abyss or Force Field? And anyway, there's a, there's a back and forth about that. Huh. But the last thing I did in this series is I have an alternative history. So it's not just what happened, why did it happen, and the explanation for why it happened and the context, but what could or should have happened knowing what we know now, right? Interesting. So that's what I did with this article on every single card. So I have January 25th, 19, 26th, 1994, what happened? The following cards were restricted, 18 restrictions. Mm-hmm. And then I say, what should have happened? So to give some examples, <laughs> um, what actually happened was Ali from Cairo was restricted. Dingus Egg was restricted. Icy Manipulator <laughs> was restricted. Rook Egg was restricted. In addition to the Power Nine. But there were a lot of cards that were restricted that shouldn't have been, but even more cards that weren't restricted that should have been. Yeah. Right? Like, for example, the two biggies, that three biggies I said definitely should have been restricted, were Library of Alexandria and mm-hmm. Mind Twist. Mind Twist became the best deck for in the spring and summer of 1994. It mm-hmm. won Manifest in San Francisco. It won a Bo Bell, won U.S. Nationals, and this guy named Bin Chen one Dragon Con, which is Dragon Con is famous. Do you know why Dragon Con's famous, Kevin? I don't. So 
we might think of tournaments as like this black box. There weren't actually that many high-profile sanctioned tournaments. In fact, if you look at the early issues of the Duelist, you can find every sanctioned tournament. They were all announced in the Duelist. They had to be they had to be sanctioned like months in advance. I think right, it was like right. six to eight weeks in advance. So they're all announced. You can actually track them down, and I've done that through my series. So right. people can purchase the chapters and, and hopefully the book, and you'll see it. Dragon Con in Atlanta was the tournament where they gave away Nalathani Dragon. Oh, which was one of the okay. first promos that wasn't available, and it caused, of course, a huge oh, yeah. <laughs> backlash. Right. Um, and there were more <laughs> promos to come, but people couldn't get their hands on it, right? So it was this promo. Um, the Mind Twist deck won like all those major tournaments. And by the Mind Twist deck, I mean a blue-black deck that had basically counter spells, dark rituals, mana vaults, mind twists, and then fast creatures. Mm-hmm. Um, and that deck was just the best deck. And of course, library also had to be restricted. So the other thing, so I, I talk about what should have been restricted and, and what was and, and the difference. And there's a couple things I want to highlight. Number one, just so folks know, the first mandatory announcement was in, 2000, was in January 26, 1994. Before that, there were quote unquote recommended banned and restricted lists. And the recommended banned and restricted list automatically restricted every artifact, Kevin. <laughs> Good grief. So artifacts were restricted under most house rules and under the DC Duelist Convocations recommended in the Wild Era, like December and January 1994. Um, now, the interesting, the big ones that I, I really had to go over and debate, number one, I think it's clear, crystal clear, that in the spring of 1995, Mana Drain should have been restricted, just mm-hmm. like it is in, in old school 93-94. Yeah. That's a card that should have been restricted earlier. But the big, big ones are... I think in terms of like the debates of when things should have been restricted are number one, when should brainstorm have been restricted? Mm-hmm. Number two, when should necropotence and demonic consultation have been restricted? Number three, when should lone stone golem have been restricted? And number four, when should gush have been restricted and or unrestricted? Mm-hmm. Those in the whole like sweep of the format are kind of the most interesting ones. Um, necropotence, I think, was actually restricted at exactly the right time hmm. because. Uh, Necropotence was restricted, was legal from basically 95 to 2000. It was restri- restricted in October 2000. And until you found a real great combo deck, Necropotence was just fueling creatures. It was fueling like knights, pump knights, Juzim Jins, hypnotic specters. Mm-hmm. There were decks that could win for a small period of time with corrupt as a win condition, kind of like a pseudo tendrils, you know, but you couldn't just play like one corrupt to win the game, right? You, <laughs> right. you, Gorged on Necro, and then you played Corrupt, then you gorged on Necro, and then you played Corrupt. There were some invitational decks using Necro that way. And there was also a really cool combo deck that existed for just a little minute uh, from 1999 to 2000, where you could use Mirror Universe as the win condition with Necropotence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but there really wasn't a time where I think Necropotence had to be restricted, especially with Black Vise unrestricted. I think the the deck that caused it to be restricted was obviously Trix, and I yep. think that was exactly the right time to restrict Necropotence. But it's a harder call to decide when to restrict Demonic Consultation. Um, and I think Demonic Consultation is very similar to Brainstorm. I think, though, I found the answer to all these questions, Kevin. <laughs> okay. Do you good, have an good. answer of when you think Brainstorm should have been restricted? Oh, I don't have, I don't have an answer to that. Sorry. <laughs> okay. I think that Brainstorm should have been restricted when Gifts was restricted, which was roughly around that time, 2007 or 2008. Gifts Ungiven was restricted on June 2007, and... Merchant Scroll should have been restricted there. Mm-hmm. At a minimum, Merchant Scroll should have been restricted. That was the because that was the card that was in the Mean Deck, Mean Deck Gifts, mm-hmm. and it was obviously great in the Gush decks at the same time. 
mm-hmm. were that had pre-existed. Gush had been was was unrestricted at the same time. So restricted. That's when Merchant School should have been restricted instead of a year earlier. I think Merchant Brainstorm could have been restricted there or in 2008. And the reason I think it would have been fine to restrict Brainstorm in 2007 at that moment is because pitch it was the kind of the linchpin of pitch long, which was the second or first best deck at the time. So I think Brainstorm should have been restricted that that time. It's possible it could have been restricted earlier. Brainstorm wasn't even heavily played until Fetchlands were created, which is why Onslaught is like one of the most momentous moments in the entire history of the format. It totally changed the value of Brainstorm. Um, and the other question is, um, actually, I asked you, when do you think Lodestone Golem should have been restricted? Sooner. Agreed. <laughs> I think it's clear it was a mistake to restrict Chalice before Gollum. Mm-hmm. My, I came up with an answer after reflecting on this a long, long time. So, just to put it in context, Lodestone Gollum was printed in World Wake, along with Jace, at the beginning of 2010. And everyone, I mean, Lodestone Gollum was like an automatic, incredible card for, for vintage. It was just automatically heavily played. Yep. Um, and it was ultimately restricted in April 2016. In what, in ultimately, which was, I think, the most controversial restriction ever. There's a lot of candidates for that title, but I think the backlash, <laughs> I mean, the 2008 apocalypse where they restricted five cards was super controversial. But mm-hmm. the Sturm und Drang from the restriction <laughs> of uh, Lodestone was like basically almost unparalleled. Like the yeah. unhappiness that reverberated out of that. <laughs> If you go back and look at all the data, I think the best time that you should have, the the moment that Lodestone should have been restricted was September 2012, because the Vintage Championship in 2012 was 50% Lodestone decks, and Lodestone had just totally dominated the format. It had been given two years to exist, really three years if you count the entirety of 2010. That's when it should have been restricted. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the sequencing was just all wrong on that. It, it just existed for too long. I was on the fence on that for so long, you know, but it should have been restricted earlier. Um, the other thing I, I promised I'd get back to this is prosperity vis-a-vis Mana Vault, Mana Crypt, right? Mana Crypt is, exists, is a pro- book promo card. It circulated basically in the spring of 1995. Mana Crypt was never restricted until it wasn't even restricted until 1999, Kevin. Yeah, it's ridiculous. I'm sorry, Mana Vault. Mana Vault, I mean. Both yeah. cards. Um, so the question is, when should those cards have been restricted? Mana Vault is is incredible card, possibly could have been restricted along with um, Mind Twist, or instead of Mind Twist, but it wasn't. And it's unrestricted in 93-94 to date, pretty much to no, no problem. Mm-hmm. You know, I was really skeptical when they unrestricted it, when the Swedes unrestricted it first, but it really hadn't been a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you have insane mana with Mana Vault and Mana Crypt and Hercules Recall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you might say, isn't there something broken you can do with that? There are things you can do with it. I mean, like, four Mana Crypt is just pretty insane with Atog decks and like Jam Day Tome type decks, right? But it's not in maybe Browse decks in the n- 1996, but it's not actually proven broken until prosperity is printed mm-hmm. prosperity is printed in visions and it basically changes type one the prosperity decks were the best deck in the format in 1996 they won all the major tournaments like all the type one players in that uh, form so the dci restricted black vise which was the wrong restriction mm-hmm. they should have restricted either prosperity or mana crypt and mana vault at that point i think it's it's a you can make either case if you go a narrow tailoring route you should have just restricted prosperity because then you keep mana vault and mana crypt unrestricted but 
If they had restricted Mana Vault and Mana Crypt in 1997, then you would have dramatically reduced the problem of Academy later on. I think they should have restricted it in 1997, along with Vamp and Mystical, and then you would then the Academy problem when when uh, Urza Saga comes along in in uh, late 1998, you wouldn't have needed to restrict the huge wave in 1999. Mm-hmm. So what actually happened in 99 is there was three waves of restriction. The first was uh, in January of 99 was Stroke Academy and Windfall. I actually think that was almost exactly right. The only card they missed that should have been restricted was Yogmoth's Will. <laughs> then a couple months later, they restricted uh, Memory Jar and Time Spiral. I think that was close but wrong, because this is when the second set in Urza Block comes out. What they should have done is restrict Jar. They also needed to restrict Tinker there, and probably <laughs> Crop Rotation. It makes no sense to restrict Jar and not Tinker, right? Yeah, agreed. Then, in October, they restricted 18 cards. <laughs> Which was a mistake because most of those cards should have been restricted. What I actually say, and it's kind of the funniest part of the of the article, is I said they restricted eighteen cards. That's what happened. What should have happened? I said they should have only restricted one card. Bargain. Mm. And the reason is because Will should have been restricted in January. Tinker should have been restricted in April, and then uh, crop and crop rotation in April. Then the other cards that needed to be restricted. Petal, Mana Crypt, and Mana Vault should have, and Mystical Tutor and Vamp should have already all already been restricted. Mm. And then no other cards needed to be restricted. Doomsday should not have been restricted. Dream Halt should not have been restricted. Grim Monolith should not have been restricted. Hercules Recall should not have been restricted. Hercules Recall does not need to be restricted with all the artifacts already restricted. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mox Diamond did not need to be restricted. And uh, Voltaic Key did not need to be restricted. So if if you put this historical lens and you look at everything that what should have happened, it totally changes the outcomes. That's that's basically what I wanted to say is that I think in 1997 it's a close call about whether you just hit. I think you need to hit Vamp and you need to hit Mystical, but it's a close call as to whether you need to hit Crypt and Man and Vault there or whether you can just restrict Prosperity and allow those cards to exist for a little bit. There's an interesting modern announcement that was that was recently uh, Ian Duke announced lately that is a similar dilemma where they decided not to restrict... Do you know what I'm talking about, Kevin? I'm guessing you're talking about the choice to restrict KCI versus Opal versus Ancient Stirring. Exactly. It's a similar debate. Mm-hmm. Do you restrict Prosperity, or do you restrict Mana Crypt and Mana Vault? Right, right. right. And, they, and they decided to restrict KCI. I don't know anything about Modern, so I don't know what these terms mean exactly. I know the <laughs> cards. I don't know the decks. I don't know the strategy. Um, but but, but the, the premise was that Opal, as he said in, in the article... And stirrings, what they basically said is that it creates more deck building possibilities, mm-hmm. right? And so they decided not to restrict those cards because they wanted to create more. This is what he said. He said the build around nature of these cards, right? Mm-hmm. Of ancient stirrings and mox opal. And so you could say the mana crypt and mana vault are the same case, right? Prosperity only goes into one deck. Yeah. But uh, M- mana crypt and mox o- mana vault potentially could be used to support a lot of different strategies. It, it's a question as to like at what point did these cards just become so proven that they're abusive they have to be restricted right like necropotence is the same thing i think they made the right decision i think necropotence was an important part of the type one environment until 2000 mm-hmm. the last thing so any other comments about anything i've said so far kevin i i just want to ask did you or can you in your article talk about the impact of lion's eye diamond vis-a-vis yes. its mana activation ruling yes. at the time so Lion's Eye Diamond um, was, I didn't discuss it a lot, but I did say that what I felt should have happened in 1999 is the Academy deck should have been able to exist with one Academy 
with the following artifacts unrestricted. The only ones unrestricted. Mox Diamond, Grim Monolith, and Lion's Eye Diamond. Those are the ones that should have been able to exist. Now, there was a brief period of time. I think it was before 1999, though, because that's when 6th edition comes in, um, where Lion's Eye Diamond could be used to cast a spell in hand, just one spell. Mm -hmm. But that that was... was and that was the, brief kind of the basis of Chapin's deck at Origins that year, I remember. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he, he, was, he was wrecking people with that. And for those of you who don't realize, so Lion's Eye Diamond is fairly well known currently because you have to discard your hand in order to gain the mana. There was a brief window, rules-wise, where you could announce a spell and then choose to pay for it using a Lion's Eye Diamond that was in play. This was before Lion's Eye Diamond was one's eye diamonds ruling was updated to include the notion that you could only activate its ability when you could cast an instant before they added right. that phrase you could use it anytime you could play a man ability which included during the announcement of a spell that window did not last very long though right it was a pretty brief window um so there's a, but what i'm able to do is have the whole whole kind of history the whole warp and woof of the format to look holistically and see when cards should have been restricted. And as top eight data begins to emerge around 2000, 2001, then I can bring percentages of top eights and dominance into the analysis, which I do for every single restriction I I discuss post 2001. The only exception, of course, is the only preemptive restriction in the history of the format, which is, of course, Kevin. Uh, Mine's desire. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The last thing I want to say, though, is that at the end of the day, I guess I'll say two two final points. The, at the end of the day, when you sequence all of these things up, it's glaring that the DCI has made a number of errors in the sequencing of restrictions for Xerox and shops. There's no way that the Chalice should have preceded Lodestone Golem. It just makes mm-hmm. no sense. <laughs> and similarly, there's no way that Gush and Kataxi and Probe should have been restricted before Mentor. Yeah. That doesn't mean that the chalice and gush or probe didn't need to be restricted. Although I certainly don't think probe should have been restricted. It's ridiculous. <laughs> um, <clears throat> at least not on a dominance or performance basis. Yeah. Um, but the sequencing is just glaringly erroneous. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the last thing is that at the end of the article, I have a discussion over a bunch of cards. I talk about fast bond. I talk about windfall, mental misstep and paradoxical outcome. I do just want to say that I think misstep is a very interesting case. I think misstep in the whole history of the format is like brainstorm and like demonic consultation in the sense that those are cards that are very difficult to pinpoint when they should have been restricted. Mm -hmm. I actually think at the end of the day, consult should have been restricted way before necropotence because consult was used by the necropotence decks and restricting it would have weakened the necropotence decks without completely neutering necropotence. But more than that, it was such a powerful build-around card that if things had gone correctly, it would have been automatically used in reanimator decks, automatically used in other combo decks, and automatically used in mask knot decks, which by a historical anomaly anomaly never existed. Because (laughs) the errata on illusionary mask didn't happen until 2000. If mask knot had worked like it should have, it would have been legal in 1996, and it would have been, consult would have been automatic four of in, in mask knot. Yeah. Um. And I think mental misstep is actually a really hard case because it it's not archetype or school of magic neutral. What mental misstep does, and let me explain what I mean by that. Mental misstep does not have an equal effect across archetypes. Mm-hmm. It helps some archetypes and hurts some archetypes. 
it's certainly it would be churlish of me to deny that it helps uh xerox decks because it creates a tempo <laughs> play and protect it helps them and it harms the dark ritual restricted list combo decks it, mm-hmm. it makes duresses so much worse and dark ritual so much worse mm-hmm. so it has uneven effects across archetypes now it might help dredge as much as it hurts dredge so there there are some cases in which it probably helps and hurts simultaneously but it's hard to quantify that right and of course there are sophisticated arguments that all the blue decks having to have misstep makes uh shops better and and there may be some truth to that i don't know whether misstep should be restricted or not i tend to say it should not i don't know what you, i'd like to know your opinion but i do want to point out that it's not archetype number 1 that it's not archetype neutral it helps some archetypes and hurts others it certainly i think helps xerox decks over big blue decks because the blue decks big blue decks uh can't is easily protect say ancestral recall or soul ring or tops um and finally the second point that's most important here is that it actually keeps vintage fairer so whether it hurts or helps some decks it definitely reduces the numbers uh the frequency of fast kills mm-hmm yeah, Any I thoughts? agree with that last point, and I think it that last point might go underappreciated in the broader discussion and debate about the effect that it's having on the format. So many people are quick to point out how miserable it is from a deck construction standpoint, and how it can produce some negative play patterns in a lot of people's eyes. I'm I'm firmly of the opinion that it doesn't need to be restricted at this time, but that's partially because I find myself enjoying the challenge that it <laughs> represents in deck construction. Yeah. I find myself enjoying the, the cost-benefit analysis of one-mana spells in the format. Recently, we have an interesting example in Spurling's Championship Top 8 deck and the resurgence of Spell Pierce, a yes. card that many people yes. had completely written off as unusable due to the omnipresence of misstep. And here we have Spurling with yes. a, a strong, well-positioned, dominant performance. And now there's a lot of Spell Pierce in the format again. <laughs> and so I, I genuinely think that that's one example that exemplifies the the... Well, the features of the the card that I actually enjoy, and so far I'm not the sort of person who gets bent out of shape about the presence of uh, misstep in any one game or deck or uh, or matchup. Well, you know, one of the reasons they they one of the explanations they gave for restricting all those cards in 2008, the scroll, brainstorm, and ponder, is they said when you look across the blue decks, it's hogging up a lot of deck construction space. Mm. You could make a similar argument about misstep. I think misstep is way more deserving of restriction than probe ever was. <laughs> the only reason, the only argument for restricting probe is is the effect, not its predominance. That you yeah. just don't like that if what that effect does. Um, but misstep, I, I think there's actually a surprisingly strong argument for its restriction. Again, I'm on the fence on the issue. But if you like spell pierce, and by the way, the printing of spell pierce is probably in the top ten most momentous of, like printings in the format, up there with like. <laughs> The force, force of will, onslaught, fetchlands, world wake, future sight. It's like up there, dredge, yeah. because it was the first really good one mana counter spell, and mm-hmm. it came it, right on the heels of it came flusterstorm and and mi- misstep, and there was a I mean, period bef- before misstep where spell pierce was just ubiquitous. Restricting misstep would make spell pierce a much stronger card and mindbreak trap a much more heavily played card. I do think divert would have like to have a word with you. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, in the in the period between Zendikar came out where Spellpier saw a lot of play, but before uh, Misstep, Divert wasn't a heavy player. But no, I take your not. point. <laughs> and I've had some good luck with Divert personally. <laughs> so I think we've we've talked a lot about this. I don't. I want folks to check out the article about when I thought 
balance should have been restricted, you know, when all these other cards should have been restricted or not. Uh, I've got a lot of positive feedback on the article. I mean, I'm not surprised to some extent. It's just a, a summation of a lot of what I've already written in, in an 800-page book. <laughs> you know, the, just uh, the highlights. It's kind of like the executive summary, in a sense, of my book. But please check it out and, and share share your thoughts and uh, res- respond back when you have a chance. Awesome. We do need to move on to our set review, but as you all know, it wouldn't be a set review if we didn't have our report card. So let's see how we did with Guilds of Ravnica. So for Guilds of Ravnica, this was one of our more modest list of of cards that we've reviewed. And in summary, we did quite well. But there always are a handful of cards that we discuss and then ultimately decide uh, there should not be any appearances of. And there's no difference here for the likes of Lotleth Giant, Mulder Hulk, Vraska Golgari Queen, and Notion Rain. But for those with a little more action, let's start with Mission Briefing. Steve, you predicted zero. I predicted three. The actual was two. Two appearances of mission briefing. And so, for reminder, we limit our prediction to those tournaments with 32 players or more. And we're looking at total top eights of that uh, that population that is any appearance in the top eight from one through eight. And the mission briefing had two appearances in our time period. And that was, as we predicted, primarily in Oath decks where it can play the Snapcaster Mage functionality or role without being a creature. Next, we have Creeping Chill. You and I both predicted zero, but the actual was one. One Creeping Chill Dread deck snuck into a top eight. Yeah, it was one of the vintage challenges that the Creeping Chill deck snuck into eighth place. Let me see what the the date on that one was. Well, that's at least the context in which we evaluated it, right? Oh, absolutely it is. Uh, That was from October 28th, so just before Halloween. And this was a list with fully four creeping chills. Next up, we have Ral, is it Viceroy? Steve, you predicted four. I predicted two. The actual was zero. Zero Ral, is it Viceroy's? Except, the tiny asterisk, there was one undefeated league deck. Friend of the show, so <laughs> so do you wear a cape? <laughs> Had a five zero appearance with with Ral is it Viceroy? Can you remind deck. me and our audience what and, it does? Oh, good grief! Can I remind you what Ral does? Well, so it's comical because Ral came out uh, on the heels of Teferi, not directly on, but you know, close after Teferi. And the joke was, oh, so the model for a good blue planeswalker is five mana, five loyalty, plus one get a card, minus three removal, yada, yada, yada. Yeah, Ral is three blue-red, five loyalty, plus one is, look at the top two cards of your library, put one in your hand, the other in your graveyard. Minus three, Ral deals damage to target creature, equal to the total number of instant sorcery cards you own in exile and in your graveyard. And then his emblem is the ridiculous minus eight. Whenever you cast an instant or sorcery, it deals four damage to a target and you draw two cards. I've had the pleasure of doing that once in EDH and I almost decked myself. So I don't think we've necessarily seen the end of possibility for Rel as it Viceroy, but it didn't quite make the splash well, we that we thought it would. we were expecting it to be a big splash. No, four and two is, is pretty tepid numbers from us. <laughs> Next is Mnemonic Betrayal, our preview card, which is a pretty sweet card. Steve, you predicted two. I predicted zero. The actual was 
zero. You were discussing it as a potential sideboard card in blue-based deck matchups, but it, it just hasn't been able to unseat the likes of Pyroblast and Flusterstorm for that role. Next, niv Mizzet Parun. You can't go wrong being a pessimist in this game. <laughs> <laughs> niv Mizzet Parun, you predicted one, I predicted zero. The actual was four. Wow. Count them four top eights nice. by niv Mizzet Parun, none of which were me, ironically, even though I tried my best. So I, I think I'm on record from our year in review show as saying that niv Mizzet is yeah. um, one of my favorite cards of the year. And that you said at that time as a little bit of a preview to this conversation right now that you had predicted one and I had predicted zero, but the actual was a, a, a kind of surprising four and they're all in oath decks as we can imagine, even though I and a handful of others tried our darndest to make Niv Mizzet the sort of thing that you put onto the stack rather than directly onto the battlefield. And last but not least, we have Assassin's Trophy, which got a lot of press by you and I during our year in review show. Steve, you predicted eight. I predicted seven. The actual was 11, which goes down as a high-quality win for you. The uh, Assassin's Trophy is very interesting. Wow, and we that was pretty bore close. This out in our discussion. Yeah. yeah, very close. We bore this out in our discussion that we expected it in the fish decks, which we definitely saw. Yeah. There are also a couple of appearances with it in oath decks, where it obviously has a very nice, clear role at removing various disruptive cards for the oath matchup in lieu of Abrupt Decay. And it also was the card that had the most mixed appearances between main side, and side. Yeah. There, there were several overlapping lists I had to tease out from our results here where it was in both the main and the side of a handful of these well, lists. You may recall that was an issue that we raised in the set review, and sorry, in our year mm-hmm. in review, in which I pointed mm-hmm. out that you know, the strategic significance of a card is sometimes signified by its placement. Is it you know, used in a particular matchup, or is it like mm-hmm. driving the deck or an engine for the deck? And um, one of the reasons I picked Assassin's Trophy over Karn as card of the year for the Moxies was because I just think it's going to have a longer, long-term impact, despite the fact that its numbers were lower overall than Karn. But uh, a listener pointed out subsequently, and I think what, and quite accurately, was that uh, Karn had more runway up into the year in review. Mm-hmm. And so if, if if roles had been reversed, Assassin's Trophy would have probably had similar numbers to Karn. Overall. We, so in the future, what we should do, and I'll try to remember to do so when we're gathering our data for the year in review, is not only look at total top eight appearances and break the data down that way, but also look at uh, normalized yes. by the duration of the year. So how many per month uh, for their yeah, time period? Or because just you could do a per month absolutely stat, right. period. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Assassin's Trophy would have been in first place if we had normalized as such. So that, that uh, supports my ultimate decision in that case. <laughs> yes, it does. Yes, it does. So overall, uh, a pretty tepid set review for us. I mean, with the highest number we predicted was eight for Assassin's Trophy. The actual, there was 11. The highest gap for any one prediction for us was only three. You're eight versus 11 for Assassin's Trophy. So yeah, overall, we were pretty spot on. There was a couple of zeros and ones that either that neither of us got right. The creeping chill, we, we missed it by by just one, for example. But overall, pretty spot on for us on that set. Let's see if we can't carry that good fortune forward for Ravnica Allegiance. (laughs) 
So let's start with the headliner of the set. I think there's no denying that Lavinia Azorius Renegade is on everyone's mind. And because our review here has been a, a bit delayed due to our unfortunate consecutive illness, <laughs> we already have a little bit first, of a cheat and then here. I got the plague. <laughs> exactly. We all, we're obviously, we're cheating a little bit. Now, full disclosure, neither Steve nor I have looked at actual results on tcdex.net for preliminary returns here. So we, we haven't cheated and seen that whether or not there's a non-zero amount of any of these already. But we we clearly know, based on the VSL, that there's been some play and a lot of attention to Lavinia. So we have a bit of an advantage here. But here's what Lavinia is. For white-blue, she is a legendary creature, human soldier. She's 2-2. Each opponent can't cast non-creature spells with converted mana cost greater than the number of lands that player controls. Also, whenever an opponent casts a spell, if no mana was spent to cast it, counter that spell. Steve, I don't know where we should begin here, just because we're in a little bit of an unusual situation vis-a-vis set review, vis-a-vis see people have already watched me cast this <laughs> spell on stream. <laughs> I yeah. played with it as so, well. <laughs> yeah. So we've both brought this card to bear on the VSL. Now, where, where do you think you should begin? When, when normally well, our rigor would start with things like yes. mana cost and similar yeah, cards, etc. Yeah, I think we start there. This is a, a two-mana bear. It has a, mm-hmm. It's a legendary bear. It's meddling mage mana cost. Uh, Meddling Mage yep. doesn't see any current play in Vintage, but it certainly has seen plenty of play in Noble Fish type decks over the years. Um, you even you even used to play it laughably in retrospect <laughs> in a workshop deck in five color stacks. Um, That's right. So um, this mana cost is eminently playable in Vintage. It's even more so than it would have been say five years ago because it comes after the printing of Fragmentize and Monastery Mentor, two of the best white printings ever. <laughs> ever, <laughs> yep. which yep. have made white a, a, a much stronger secondary color. It used to be five, let's say, in the period between 2000 and let's say three and to 2000 and let's, oh, just until Fragmentize, you, yeah. if you wanted to have a decent match against shops, you had to play either red or green. You just had to. Yes. You played Grixis or you played with green. And, and, and there was Naturalize <laughs> and then Nature's Claim. And then obviously Ancient Grudge incentivized you to play both, but you had to play one or the other, you yeah. know. And then with red, there were a lot of other printings, you know. The, you go from Rack and Ruin to I forget what's in between that, but you basically get Shattering Spree. You get yeah. uh, um, uh, Ingotchur. was the dominant <laughs> card for a good long time. What would you say? Right. Meltdown. Meltdown. Well, that's that was less played, but Meltdown. <laughs> Meltdown was kind of like in the Shattering Spree era. Uh, sorry, yeah. sorry, Shattering Pulse. Shattering yeah. Pulse, yeah. Where it was briefly played. But uh, in terms of like heavily played red cards, you go from Rack and Ruin in the mid-2000s to Ingot Shure to Shattering Spree slash By Force today. By Force, yeah. yeah. Don't forget, that there was a period of, it was probably a two-year period, give or take, where Ingot Shure was the most yes. played creature yes. in Vintage. Uh, oh, Which I don't is forget. Mind-boggling. I, 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 <laughs> no, I mean it was it was also the time when Dark Confidant was really good. So it was like yeah. always a, a deadly thing. Like, do you want to flip this to Dark Confidant? And it, it was mm-hmm. one of those other challenging things because you can't mystical for it, you can't snap it back. So Ingot Shure right. became increasingly awkward as those as like Snapcaster Mage was printed, for example. Yeah. So anyway, that brings us back around yeah. to the fact that Big Lavinia game. is imminently uh, castable, but she definitely has that challenge that you and I have observed over the years in double designated mana costs. 
especially in a diversity of them here. But the the trick is is that a double designated mana cost on a two mana creature like this is kind of like we, we've it's talked about in the past where cost. it's yeah. kind of like two and a half mana, yeah, because you can't necessarily reliably have it on two the way vintage mana bases are constructed. And the way your mana base in a deck like Jeskai is stretched thin to require a number of different uh, colored of mana cards in sequence throughout the game, Pyroblast being a great example. Now, I compensated for that in my VSL list by minimizing the red. I only, in the main deck, I only had two Pyroblasts and two Dax. Those are the only red cards, so that I could more reliably fetch white mana on curve and cast Lavinia, but... The, the issue still remains that she can't be cast with any of the three other mocks in, in a deck that happens to have five, like your outcome deck. Right. So let's let's shift from, I mean, the mana cost is, is inconvenient. It's a, it's a little bit challenging, but it's <laughs> eminently playable. Yeah, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, it's not beyond, it's not like at the, at the margins of playability, at the edges of right. castability. Um, features. Legendary creature has a tremendous drawback in the format in which, like, Caracas is played in, like, 30% of the decks. <laughs> Just <laughs> flat out, that's a problem. It is. Um, and we should point out that it's a problem that has been amplified over the course of the last year or two with respect to Combal. Yes. Right? Combal was really the thing that pushed Caracas back into the main mainstream because of the interaction it had with Outcome. But Caracas was already popular in inside of white Eldrazi decks and for some decks to fight white Eldrazi decks because of Thalia. Yes. But, and so this is something that just keeps snowballing in the metagame. But there are other legends that see plenty of play. Uh, there's Leovold. Leovold. There's mm-hmm. also Jace Vrinch Prodigy. Now, of course, there's a caveat there, which is that <laughs> Jace Vrinch Prodigy is only a legendary for a little while, in the, in yeah. the sense that really is vulnerable to Caracas. Um, and we saw that live in the VSL just this week. Yeah. That was a mistake, though. <laughs> uh, so, Jace Friends Prodigy can be flipped before Caracas comes into play, but this is this is m- much more vulnerable. Um, yeah, two two is not trivial. I mean, obviously, it's decent size. Uh, having two toughness actually matters quite a bit. It means it's mm-hmm. less in this world of uh, young pyromancer tokens. Exactly, it's not going to just get you know. Uh, it can chump pyromancer tokens indefinitely. Um, and, uh, so the stats are, are pretty decent, uh, for two mana to get a two, two. That's about right. Um, legendary creatures, certainly the drawback part here. Um, mm-hmm. the effects are both novel and immensely powerful. Yeah. So let's start so, with, uh, which one do you want to start with? The first or the second? I think it might I actually think let's start with this. Yeah. Let's start with the second. Ophelia. Actually, it's, it's actually easier to parse, I think. Right. <laughs> so it, it has echoes of Chalice of the Void, right? right? She immediately, the, the the most obvious initial effect is on Moxin and other accelerants that cost zero, especially vis-a-vis if you can get her down uh, on the first turn on the play. That's one powerful interaction, but also just fundamentally against Paradoxical Outcome, a deck that is predicated on picking up its own Moxin and yes. redeploying them for value. That means she can be disruptive even after the first turn in that matchup, and that's obviously one of the first things that the community has identified. And it just contributes to the reason why modern outcome decks need to have access to Caracas. I want to come at this from in a pincher move and from two directions. Okay. <laughs> so first, I want to point out the fact that there is a large class of cards, even aside from Moxon, that mm-hmm. have alternative casting costs, starting obviously with the Alliance's cycle. 
Um, yep. And they go from, you know, and then Nemesis and Mercadia Mask Block actually introduced, like, I think, like, 18 in one shot, like, six <laughs> yeah. of which still see play today. It's incredible yeah. how many of those. And they've continued to print alternative casting cost spells. I mean, yep. the list of alternative casting cost spells that are playable or have been played in Vintage is enormous. It just starts with Force of Will, mist, Mental Misstep, and Gush. It goes to cards like <laughs> Misdirection, Spinning Darkness, which we saw on VSL. Uh, mm-hmm. Spinning Darkness, by the way, I think may be the first alternative casting cost spell. I think it preceded it. It's the sorry, it's the first post Force of Will alternative casting cost spell. Is what it is. There you go. Um, and uh, Cabal Therapy, Dread Return. So there's mm-hmm. an enormous class of spells in the format that are not cast with mana. So mm-hmm. that's then you have these specialized cards that really are the format defining cards of the format. The Power Nine. Most of which, two thirds of the power nine are played for mm-hmm. free. So this card attacks two large swaths of real estate in the format. Aside from the first clause, just the second sentence alone does yeah. all of that. That's <laughs> immensely powerful. It totally is. And uh, just for the sake of clarity, in case anyone does not already realize, uh, Phyrexian mana does not count as having paid mana for this ability. So you cannot, so she will counter a mental misstep that is paid for two life, yes. which is probably widely understood by most of you, but an area of the rules that yes. uh, might not be plainly obvious to someone if they're trying to intuit the interaction. And by the way, just for the historical record, Submerge saw a lot of play in the original Groatog days. Massacre mm-hmm. is still a hilarious card. Um, <laughs> Especially against Lavinia, yeah. if you could get it to work. <laughs> uh, I think, have you ever played Mog Salvage before, Kevin? Uh, oh, yeah, absolutely. Vintage, we played Mog technology. Salvage back in the Slaver days. Yes, yeah, Mog Salvage. Yeah. So Nemesis has like tons of, quote, free cards that saw play. Uh, now, they yeah. don't see play today, but they could always see play again at some point. Uh, yep. You know, and uh, let's not forget Days. Days. Uh, Chapin once played in his first, grow, his first Grow deck, had Foil main deck. Right, um, right. Uh, and, and then, as you said, there's cards like Surgical Extraction. Um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Tormod's Crypt, Chalice of the Voice played at zero. There's all mm-hmm. kinds of cards that are, are either played for no mana or alternative casting cost. And let's not forget the impact that it potentially has on Foundry Inspector. Oh, yeah. If your opponent has one Foundry Inspector, it's only a problem for exactly Sol Ring in their deck <laughs> normally. <laughs> but as soon as your opponent a hits second. a second Foundry Inspector, then any two mana spell they would normally play off of the double Inspector is countered by Lavinia. So if they have two inspectors in play sphere of resistance, it'll be countered since they didn't pay any mana. Is there a strategy in playing Helm to make your opponent's spells cost less and get them countered? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, you you say that, and some lunatic is probably going to try it. <laughs> well, this is this also bears mentioning. This is not symmetrical. This is that's the, one of the chief dis- differences between this and Meddling Mage yeah. or, and or Chalice of the Void is that yep. Meddling Mage, you name Flash or Force of Will. It affects both players. You play this, mm-hmm. it only affects your opponent. That's the other thing that's that's absurd here. <laughs> that you are <laughs> unilaterally disarming your opponent from force of will. Just yeah. on that second clause alone. <laughs> Let a, so, yeah. so let's talk about that. Let's talk about the effect this has in but, but matchup my matchup, right? So in the most common deck in the format based on january's challenge results uh workshops what effect does this have well it stops them from playing the moxen on turn one if you can get it down immediately Mm -hmm. otherwise it has almost no effect it will only stop late game mid to late game moxen 
yeah. and it will stop a Chalice of the Void at zero. But yeah. there's now we're only talking about the second ability here, yes. not the whole yeah. card at this that, point. But that's yeah. it. Yeah. So the Jeskai matchup then, or or the Xerox matchup, I should peak, say, almost peak utility, if not peak utility. It stops, yeah. affects Force of Will. Completely stops Force of Will. Stops yep. Mental Misstep unless they pay a mana. Uh, stops obviously Moxen, which are l- less prevalent. I mean, the Xerox decks don't max out on efficient mana. You right. often they they almost almost they always run on color Moxen. Sometimes run off color Moxen, but they don't necessarily run like Lotus Petal Mana Crypt that are also mm-hmm. affected by this. But the trade-off is you hit uh, the delves. You hit the core of the Xerox draw engine. Now you hit Gush. You hit Treasure Cruise. You hit Dig Through Time, and you hit the recursion of those. Like for example, yeah. Jace, uh, uh, flip Jace, flashback those, or snap, flashback those. Now, now you're talking about the combination of her two abilities there, of course, right? No, no, no. Gush, no I'm sorry, you're right. I did. Yeah, yeah. You were skipping the, ahead. Gush, the gush, second, gush, the second ability really only hits Gush. Yeah, only hits Gush. Yeah, yeah. Unless they have the five lands in play, you can you can return two I'm islands to al- cast a Gush. The alternative casting if cost, you have five lands in play, yeah. <laughs> the alternative casting cost is com- is shut down by the second. Yeah, that's right. That's what it I'm is. talking it about. Is. Yeah. Yeah. So then going on to paradoxical outcome, right? This is probably her peak application. Agreed. Yeah. Because as we observed, she shuts off the Moxen, which even if you don't get it down before the Moxen, it still severely hampers the outcome deck from really going off when they pick up all those Moxen and then can't redeploy them for value. And she also happens to hurt Gush if the deck is playing Gush and a few other corner cases if they have um, Mental Misstep, for example, and obviously their Force of Wills as well. Well, here's the here's the reason I think it's it's a hard to say. So if I want to put it in schools of vintage theory, mm-hmm. the three archetypes that are hit hardest, the schools that are hit hardest, are the Restricted List Combo School, the Alan Comer School, the Xerox School, and the, the Big Mana Sub-School of the Wiseman School. Like the par- mm-hmm. and the reason I think it's a toss-up between these three. Let's just focus on the PO versus Xerox, though, is because strategically speaking, PO decks. First of all, they don't they don't tend to run mis- misstep. So although they run more zero mana spells, and paradoxical outcome is is virtually shut off itself. The paradoxical deck is an aggressive deck, and it can still execute a game plan. It can still play. Tutor for for Tinker for Colossus. It can still assemble mm-hmm. Time Vault. It can still play mm-hmm. Yogmoth's Will into a Tutor, into Ancestral, into Tendrils. It can still do all of those things, and it can do it in an aggressive posture, even with Lavinia in play. It's harder to play a Yogmoth's Will with Lavinia in play, but it's not harder to play Tinker. But what mm-hmm. is the problem, strategically speaking, is the Xerox deck cannot effectively play a control role with Lavinia in play. And Xerox decks like to play control roles. They like to pivot between mm-hmm. tempo and control. And so I think that it's, in terms of you're just looking at the slice of the real estate that this card affects, it's pretty similar, actually, because you have the trade-off, right? The Xerox decks has more free blue spells, the, but the PO decks have more free artifact spells. <laughs> but and, and you might say, well, it affects PO, more, it's, which is the engine of the deck, but a Xerox deck only has one plan then it mm-hmm. basically just has to go tempo and it can't stop anything that you do. It can't force mm-hmm. you and it's very limited in terms of its ability to control you. I see your point exactly and it makes sense. I think you need to take that perspective and also keep in mind the fact that the average Xerox deck has between 6 and 10 ways to remove Lavinia yes. though, whereas the average outcome deck has 2 
perhaps that's, post that's, boards. That's fine, but let me let me. Mm-hmm. That's another point. So so let me repost. <laughs> <laughs> um, the number of turns that the Xerox deck has needs to win is much greater than the number of turns a PO deck has. So what that means is that the the, the PO decks game plan is like between one and six turns, let's say, or one and five turns. What the Xerox decks game plan is like between basically like one and like it's one and like 15 turns, right? Yeah. So what that means is that the, like the window of impact for Lavinia is, is much tighter in terms of PO. It means that it means two things. It means that PO that Lavinia can often be too late against PO, it's rarely going to be too late against Xerox. I mean, Xerox has to have a lot of restricted cards for it to be too late, for Lavinia to be too yeah. late. And and mm-hmm. I think it basically it comes down to like like mentor. <laughs> number <laughs> number one. Number two, it means that even if Lavinia lands, the PO deck can just win, you know, like in the next turn with like Tinker or Key Vault or something. Whereas mm-hmm. the Xerox deck is going to have more time where it's impacted. It's like a reverse Dark Confidant. Dark Confidant's better the longer the game goes, right? Lavinia yeah. will have more time to have an impact against a, against a Xerox deck. Yeah. So that's and these hard are, to weigh. Yeah, these. these are important impacts for people to understand the role that Lavinia plays in each deck and from the perspective of each of those decks. Right. Mm-hmm. So let's. So do you have other matchups you want to go to, or do you want to go to? Well, I th- I think we should continue the analysis though of her second ability. That's what I meant. The I the, meant. the no mana ability. Okay. And talk about dread. Sure. You already alluded to the fact that it hits both cobble therapy and dread returns when they're cast for free from Which the yard. They almost like almost always yeah, are. I mean, yeah. dread return. I, I've never seen hard cast maybe once. And yeah, ninety nine percent for dread return and Cab- probably cobble therapy is frequently cast post board from with mana, yeah. but not with these pitch lists that are out there now. I mean, the pitch list it right. just shuts down like. <laughs> like forty percent yeah. of the deck, right? And um, unmask maybe even more. <laughs> but we we must address the fact that she's frequently going to be way not too fast slow, enough, right? Yeah, at two point five mana, she's completely unreliable at that function unless you get the coveted turn one uh, proper combination of accelerants. And as such, she really can't be considered to be for the dredge matchup. Right. If she's good enough in your deck, it will be it will be completely gravy that she is occasionally disruptive against dredge. It is strange to say, but the the pitch dredge decks burn their hand so much faster than the regular dredge. I mean, mm-hmm. like between the misstep and force and the mind break trap, they're often just playing a tempo game, and with unmask, it's even more so. So, like unmask is is rarely played after turn one <laughs> with right. pitch dredge, unless like something crazy is happening. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like it's just so, you always unmask immediately, and and <laughs> and like the blue cards in the pitch dredge deck, blue the pitch dredge deck doesn't build like a big blue hand. Very, you know, after a couple of turns, if no, it's game, if its all. game plan is proceeding, yeah, yeah, not at all. And so we we both missed uh, Hollow One. We we must address the fact that she counters Hollow One that is cast for yeah. for free which it almost always is in dredge because of the bizarre activation <laughs> um unlike in survival though where it's possible to to cast a hollow one for one mana thanks to survival of the fittest activations the the survival deck has not quite the same impact as pitch dredge if you're the sort of survival deck with counter magic then yes your missteps and forces are affected and your hollow ones are affected and your um Basking root wallas are affected, 
It's possible to circumvent the issue in the case of Hollow One, but not through Bazaar. The triple discard and Bazaar means your Hollow Ones get countered, but if you get the double activation of Survival and pay one mana for a Hollow One, yeah, then, then it won't be countered by Lavinia. But that's not what Dredge does. Dredge activates Bazaar right. and plays Hollow One. It do- but I, I mentioned all that to say that there's also a highly disruptive effect on the on the sorry the Survival matchup, yeah. and it, but it's similar to Dredge where she's not fast enough to be good. And if she is good enough, it, it will be because of all the other cards you've played that game, usually, <laughs> that have prolonged the game into the mid-game where she can partially disrupt them. But she doesn't have anything to say about Avenger. Looking at the Montolio list from the Vintage Challenge, there's a full 25 cards in the deck that are primarily <laughs> played using their alternative kit mana cost for mm-hmm. free or are hollow one and have a, co- a cost redu- reduced. Mm-hmm. So that's it. That's incredible. It's incredible. I mean, and that and the de- that's in a deck that also has four serum powder, four bridge, and four leyline, meaning cards <laughs> that are not cast at all. So right, right. So well, there's a, I mean, there's a reason that deck has no mana producing lands in the main. Right. <laughs> so let's back up then, unless there's a matchup I'm forgetting. Well, you let's didn't ba- mention combo, but combo is not a big part of the format right now. So true, true. So let's talk about this first ability then. Each opponent can't cast non-creature spells with converted mana costs greater than the number of lands that player controls. This effect is... <laughs> it's it's similar, but, it, but different. Yeah, exactly. Right? That's exactly what I would say. <laughs> it is similar, it not, but it's also it different. It does not exclude you from casting any particular category of spells within reason. You can pay five mana for a force of will. You can pay one mana for a mental misstep. You could, if you can imagine it, Pay eight mana for treasure cruise, but you have to have all eight of those lands in play. And any Moxin or other kind of accelerants you have can't help you in those cases. She makes unfair decks play fair, ostensibly. I, I want to I want to build. The more unfair your deck is, the harsher she is against it. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I mean, the, the weird thing is she's kind of inverse in terms of speed. So she's she's extremely good against unfair decks, but ex- mm-hmm. but so slow. That the unfair decks that are the fastest shall have the the least impact. Precisely, which is dredge being the best example. Yeah, probably. Um, so here's the thing: I'd like to kind of sketch out the Venn diagram of overlapping impact, right? I mean, it's so <laughs> it's weird between these first two clauses, right? I mean, because force yeah. of will, gush, both are at the center of that overlap, right? That wedge mm-hmm. between the two circles. Like it's strange <laughs> that you have it's strange, isn't it, that you have an effect that hits the same effects but from different angles. The same Absolutely. It's very interesting. Right. It's it's we almost weird. It's like imagine if Graft Digger's cage uh had had like an effect that said creatures can't come into play from libraries, graveyards. <laughs> uh you also if a creature were to come into play and it weren't you didn't pay its mana cost, it's countered or something, right? I mean, right? <laughs> yeah, right. It's like... That's a good analogy, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's just I think odd. There, there's at least one other card that's in the center of that Venn diagram, and it's Dread Return. <laughs> yeah, right. Because you're, you're never casting it, and you also never have four lands in play. It's in the center of the wedge, <laughs> yeah, between the two. Yeah. Um. So let, let's just go over, the again, the cards that... Now, this... This is weird because it's it's a little bit like Damping Sphere in that, ostensibly, what this really hurts are Soul Land decks. Workshops, Eldrazi Temples, Ancient Tomb decks. Because those decks, like White Eldrazi, which we haven't mentioned, we haven't talked about, those decks ostensibly accelerate out higher mana curve spells than lands. Now, that 
is no longer really true for shops anymore, but it used to be. That was the whole point <laughs> of shops, right? Yeah. Well, and it, the, the key word in this whole first ability is non-creature. So the observations that you just made about the, the goal and the structure of those decks, this first ability is... This first ability basically sidesteps the challenge with those decks because primarily they're trying to play creatures. They're trying to cheat out the mana cost of creatures. So the workshop into into uh, Foundry Inspector, for example, which would otherwise violate this first clause, is not a problem because it's a creature. But the intersection of the abilities on Lavinia causes inter- interesting challenges with things like Workshop Mox Ballista on 2 right? Because the mox isn't allowed <laughs> in that case, but the ballista on two would be. Conversely, you can't play, say, for example, just workshop or ancient tomb uh, sphere of resistance go because the sphere of resistance being a non-creature violates this first clause when you only have the one land in play. Given the restrictions on the workshop decks and their modern construction, and similarly for white Eldrazi, they have increasingly, vanishingly few cards that are actually in violation of this first clause because of the the restriction of Thorn of Amethyst now. And so practically, those soul decks uh, that you described are have very little cards, very few cards that are affected by this first ability in practice. We didn't mention it when we were talking about the second clause countering Moxen and such, but the first clause also hurts Paradoxical Outcome very powerfully, because what percentage of the time is Outcome cast with four lands in play, right? I would, the vanishingly small amount. So Kevin... Putting this into a Venn diagram, what are the key areas of overlap and what are the key areas of difference? And which part of the diagram is bigger in terms of the cards that are caught through the net of this card? Which which of the circles is is bigger? <laughs> yeah, I think I think the first ability is because I think on average vintage decks are trying to accelerate their curve through Moxen. It's inherent in the Moxen that you're trying to accelerate your curve on average in a vintage deck. Yes, there's a lot of freak spells, and we've talked about it, but I think it's a greater preponderance of the vintage decks and and tempo and mana curves, etc., are facilitated by the Moxon. Yeah, I mean, it's just a fact that every non-creature spell is potentially affected by the first, whereas, you know, a disproportionate number of vintage spells (laughs) are affected by the second, right? (laughs) So, that's that's what makes the... Right. In some sense, if you think that the vintage card pool is 400 cards, you know, then, like, 50 cards, probably more, are affected by the second clause, the second statement, mm-hmm. the first, second ability. Right. Um, but potentially all of them are affected by the first. But it's a little tricky because the zone of yeah. overlap, the wedge in the middle of the Venn diagram, is pretty large. <laughs> you know, that's why this it, is such yeah, a strange right. <laughs> template that it affects the same things but from different angles. Um, so, um, you know, I think this card, to, su- to summarize, is very strong against Xerox, very strong against PO. There's a debate about which it's stronger against. Also very strong against Yawgmoth's will as a tactic. You know, the post-will mm-hmm. game plan is significantly impeded. Um, and also really good against combo, but but weak off the bat against Dredge and weak overall against taxing decks. Yeah, and I also think it's worth noting that the card she just is going to get better and better over time because the average the typical vintage card that we end up reviewing and predicting uh, significant amounts of play for we do so because of its efficiency and the kind of cards that we gravitate to as a format are those that are here due to their efficiency and she preys on that, that kind true of card if misstep so, and po are restricted does that still remain true 
Well, uh, I think that's a different question, right? You're asking about the specific metagame that we're in right now. And I have an answer for that. But my point is more along the lines of design. Going forward, the kind of cards that you and I are going to predict play for are exactly the kind of cards that she punishes <laughs> and with both abilities, but especially with the first. Now, to your point about what happens if the metagame shifts for those reasons. Well, yeah, specifically if PO and or misstep are restricted, does she get better or worse? I think she might get slightly worse, but it's hard to tell because of the kind, what kind of decks are going to fill the vacuum left by PO, for example. What kind of cards are going to fill the vacuum left by misstep? They're going to be other hyper-efficient vintage cards. But that doesn't, hyper-efficient doesn't mean they're going to be so efficient that they're affected by this card. Well, that's kind of goes back to my observation about the first ability, though, right? Vintage cards, I mean, if they cost more than one mana, they're, they're, if a non-creature spell costs more than one mana, then it's hurt by her first ability. Actually, even if it does cost one mana, how many yeah. times have you gone Sapphire Preordain, right? She stops that play. That's true. In two different ways, actually. But her first ability specifically can actually disrupt one mana spells. Like, you can't, in Outcome, you can't go, or in, uh, I don't know, Grixis Thieves, you can't go uh, Mox Ruby Soul Ring with her in play. You can't go. <laughs> you can't go mox top True. with her in play. True, like you, for two different reasons, you can't. And do vintage that. decks are designed with that kind of curve. I mean, they the Precisely. whole point is that on turn one with a mox, you get to play a two mana spell, and on turn two, you play a three mana spell. On turn four, you play a. Th- uh, uh, on turn three, you play a four mana spell, and shops exactly. are just plus historically plus two of that. The problem is that <laughs> the, the problem is that that's not. This doesn't affect creatures, which shops now plays instead of sphere yeah. effects. So uh, the answer to your question is it's, it's hard to specify, but my, my gut tells me that she continues to get better over time. Regardless she, of the particular... F- yeah. th- that, that's, the reason I ask you that is because you made that statement. I wanted to know if you believe that to be a function of the metagame or a function of some deeper essence of vintage. I think it's deeper. I think it has it has to do with the efficiency and what kind of cards are playable in vintage and what the Moxin... Uh, support in terms of deck construction and mana curves. Well, that then suggests that you believe this card would see play irrespective of PO in the in the metagame. For the most Just part. Just because it's good against Vintage, period. Yeah, for the most part, And yeah. I, I agree with that. That That's going to have a big swing on our ultimate predictions, Kevin. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. So, it's a good observation. But the, the thing about our predictions is, right, they're just the next three months. <laughs> so yeah. while I think that's true, what you're saying, it also, the effect is minimized. If PPO were restricted next month, which isn't even possible, but if PPO were restricted at the next possible... It is. The next one's March. Oh, okay. So we're just over... Oh, yeah. We're month, just over a month away. Okay. But anyway, if PPO were restricted then, the time for that impact to manifest would still be only part of our prediction window. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So... um Turning, uh, before we turn to predictions, there's one other observation I just wanted to throw out, Kevin. Okay. This card is immensely powerful with Cavern of Souls. Oh, wow. We haven't really touched on humans yet. That's You're right. She could have a powerful impact on that deck. You could play this off of five-color humans. Mm-hmm. You can wedge this into a Merfolk deck, which mm-hmm. is already blue. You can play this in even White Eldrazi with a splash of blue. Basically, any deck with Cavern of Souls could potentially play this main deck or sideboard. <sighs> yep, you're totally right. And it could push humans like Seth's deck in the VSL. It could push humans up into a 3 to 5% deck, at least for a time. Right. It certainly could. Yeah. And she's already so this- seen play in the VSL out of uh, uh, Survival, right? And she's immensely powerful once she's in play, because then you can use your missteps to prevent your opponent's pyroblasts and bolts and plows from uh, killing it. Yeah, that's totally right. So that's totally the right. asymmetry then... <laughs> 
I tend to feel I don't have a great feeling about this card. I'm I'm bullish on its play, bearish on its effect. <laughs> hmm. so what, do you, what do you mean by that? Well, think about Grafdigger's Cage. Grafdigger's Cage is one of those pivotal moments in the history of the format mm-hmm. where the format took one turn. It's like up there with Onslaught lands. Mm-hmm. In fact, it may be only second to the Onslaught lands in terms of the most, after Alpha, the most important kind of format redirecting printing, which I think are yeah. even more important than the Urza, Urza Saga, saga yeah. things. Because the Urza, Urza Saga swept up everything before it that should have previously been restricted. <laughs> and and I, I'm concerned that that she is going to be a very polarizing card. I don't mean polarizing in terms of people disagreeing about her. I don't mean that she's going to uh, p- create a polarized metagame in terms of uh, uh, decks like a, a duopoly. Rather, I mean it in terms of I think she's going to exacerbate the the margins of win percentage across decks that people already dislike about the format. Yeah, you know the kind of rock paper scissors. Uh, dynamic. I think she's going to exacerbate that. I think she's going to make rock really, really good because <laughs> she so crip like is potentially crippling or powerful against Xerox and PO without actually crippling them. Right? She's like a she harms she slashes their tires without actually burning their car. <laughs> <laughs> and what it, the effect is going to be is I think shops is just going to come out so much stronger with just this card in the metagame. Hmm. Period. And I think it's gonna it's gonna have if you want to think of the knock on effects, this may be the card that saves PO from restriction and potentially wards off the restriction of misstep, but causes a restriction for something from workshops. How ironic would that be? <laughs> <laughs> Highly. You, you you think there's a risk that that the blue players will kind of tacitly assume Can't. that she is part of the metagame such that they have to have ways to fight her, thereby f- self-fulfilling that prophecy <laughs> effectively? I do. Not only that, but I also think that she's going to reduce the win percentages of the blue decks in certain matchups yeah. against each other. Yeah. So uh, she may just kneecap PO such that PO was the metagame predator for shops, remember? Mm-hmm. Such that shops surge again. Interesting. And so that would then polarize the format without actually dramatically changing the metagame and just make the metagame we had worse. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I'm not entirely disagreeing with you. Do you think that can manifest inside of three months for our predictions? Defin- definitely. Mm. But, but he, here's the other thing. So this card is, because it's, it's awkwardly cast, but it's ironically easy to play. Not, yeah. not fast to play, or but it's it's... Because white is is a secondary color, is so widely used, and Cavern of Souls makes it instantly playable in an even larger array, mm-hmm. this is going to see a lot of play. So I think the floor, turning to predictions, pivoting to the predictions, Kevin, I think the floor is around Assassin's Trophy. Now, the 11? It's 11. Think about just the points of comparison for a second. Assassin's Trophy is a, is a two-mana uh, uh, different color sp- uh, spell, gold mm-hmm. spell, right? Number number two, it sees a lot of play in the sideboard and main deck, just like Lavinia. Uh, number three is kind of awkward. <laughs> and I, I just think there's a lot of points of comparison. Obviously, there's a lot of differences, um, but I think that's the floor. I think the ceiling is probably around 35. Uh, can you think of anything that hit above 20 besides... I mean, the two cards that I remember seeing lots of play, wait, like in the 60s to 80s in our predictions during this podcast series mm-hmm. were Graf Digger's Cage and Snapcaster Mage. Yeah. Which were in this in the sixties and eighties respectively. 
Can you think of anything that hit in the, above the 20s? Do you remember anything? I seem to remember Deathrite Shaman hitting 20, <laughs> which was a surprise to us, a big surprise. But otherwise, otherwise, no, I'm blanking. I can't think of anything that, that performed over. Doesn't mean we didn't predict things over 20. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I don't think anything. I, I'm sure there was probably something. I just don't remember what it was. Still, your point so, is well made. Yeah. So, but wait, but you don't think her, I mean, her ceiling's not that high, right? You said no, her, her ceiling is 35. Oh, okay. So yeah, not, not a 60, but well, yeah. I mean, 35 does sound like an awful lot, but as a ceiling, sure. Perhaps if she was very widely adopted in Xerox and other archetypes. Yeah. Well, what if a third of Xerox decks decide to put her in the main deck or sideboard? Yeah. Right. Then she, that's, then she'd be a 15 to 20 based on that. Right. If Xerox decks are 20% of top eights, right? And let's say that it's a, uh, a typical month where there's four top eights. What's just the math on that right there? Take, uh, let's just make it easy. Let's, let's just make it easy. Do 50% of, let's say there's four top eights means there's 20, uh, sorry, 32 deck lists, right? Yeah. And if they're 20% of those, let's just make it easy. A fourth of that, that's eight. And, uh, half of that, that's four. That's four times, there's 12 Xerox decks. If, yeah. if 50% of Xerox decks run it and Xerox decks are 25% of top eights over the next three months, a reasonable average. Yeah. Then, um, then you're talking twelve appearances just in Xerox. And that's you're, not and even you're counting. just talking about challenges too, plus a couple paper events. Yeah, yeah. Not, yeah, that's not counting paper. That's not counting PO. That's not counting humans. Yeah, survival. She could be a yeah. one of in a lot of survival lists. Yep. Yeah, yeah. You're right. Yeah, I mean that's a totally reasonable assessment. I think I agree with you. So what? What's your number? <sighs> All right, I'll pin the tail on the donkey, even <laughs> though I'm blindfolded. I'm gonna say eighteen. Okay, reasonable. <laughs> I wasn't. Gosh, I. I Hmm. I guess I wasn't thinking that high until you mentioned Cavern, and then <laughs> you reminded me that we're not only talking about Xerox here. I mean, you played her in your PO list in the VSL, and it's reasonable for her to be a one of in in. She's uh, very good against sur- Xerox, right? Yeah. Survival lists plus a possible uptick in humans. I'm starting to think I didn't think I'm starting to think I might want to take the over on that. I love it. Um, we we've always bashed. We always said that you you know to win <laughs> our contest, you want to take the under but kevin the last few predictions i made from the last report yeah. card were the over and i won those yeah so yeah uh, I'm, I'm gonna take the over i mean not not grandiose not, let's i'm gonna say 20 i don't want to do prices baller. right and just say 19 <laughs> 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 you, know, you and i You're have demonstrated a, a hatred for that approach in the past <laughs> yeah we, we're averse to that <laughs> yeah we want to actually get it right not right. be right <laughs> that's right yeah i want to i want to re- recapitulate that for our audience this is not about steve and i defeating each other <laughs> this is just an exercise to try and make us both better uh through through discussion so you're an 18 i'm on 20 i think that's reasonable this is going to be real interesting to see these results kevin I, you would you had mentioned to me before that you wanted to make a design note about this card Oh, yeah, absolutely. Now that we've done our predictions, I do want to point out how I actually despise the design of this card. These two abilities, which are so similar in their, what's the word? The thing they're trying to accomplish, making your opponent play fair, they do it in such completely different ways, preventing casting versus countering. She has all the triggered ability problems of Chalice of the Void, which is notorious by this point for how bad it is for for competitive play. And on top of that, her abilities are so similar in concept, but one of them applies to creatures and one of them doesn't. It's so easy to forget and mix up which is which. And it, from a vintage context, we have creatures that you pay no mana for. So it's like, wait, does that, can I, can I play it and then it's countered or can I not play it? 
it's so confusing. They, they, they just put too much on this card and made it too confusing. And it's a, a nightmare from a rules and tournament organization, uh, you know, triggered ability standpoint. I just, I really can't believe that this card actually passed R&D or development at least. Well, that's an interesting set of observations, and I don't know that I agree with all of them, but I share your conclusion and overall uh, anxieties, to <laughs> put it that way, about the templating of this card. It's it's odd, yeah. right? It's strange. I mean, I wonder if they could have templated differently to address the concern, like maybe split the second statement into two statements. They could say, like, um, uh, no zero casting cost spells may be cast, and a second one that says no alternative, no spells may be played for an alternative with an alternative mana cost if that's even possible something like that right but but i certainly hate the chalice thing as well i think it's a it's a menace to the game yeah <laughs> and it also bifurcates the online experience from the paper experience which anything that drives a wedge through that i i dislike but overall my fears are more grounded in how i think this is going to cause the metagame to polarize and and the matchup matchups to further polarize i hate that it's such a dramatic effect and you're going to feel so helpless when you can't do anything about it it's going to be so random you know what i mean it's like it's just i think it's a menace <laughs> it's a real i mean it's just it's maybe it's the card that saves po and misstep from restriction but i think it just makes shops better and i think anything that makes shops better is a bad thing for vintage <laughs> at the end of the day seriously no i think like shops have been just so good for so long and we finally broke out of that last year that, well shops were still the best deck but they weren't like the overwhelming best deck and I think this just makes shops that much better. Well, as a community, we'll just have to try and fight to avoid that fate. <laughs> <laughs> good, good luck. It's, it hasn't worked out for us so well in the last decade. But. <laughs> All right. Well, we've talked a ton about Lavinia, but we, we simply must move on. So let's talk about Terramander. Blue for a creature Sar- Salamander Drake. It's a 1-1 with flying and adapt 4 that costs 7 U. But this ability costs one less to activate for each instant and sorcery card in your graveyard. Here we have clearly a competitor, or maybe a, a cohort, with Delver of Secrets. A creature that is a 1-1 one, one for 1, just like Delver is. Has flying right off the bat. And could, if you can assemble the mana or the right combination of cards, become a 5-5. Five, five. Well, it's interesting. I mean, the first way I think about this is as a new growing creature, right? And there's a large class of growing creatures that I have a whole subsection of a chapter in my gush book on. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, Delver of Secrets, Myth Realized, Young Pyromancer, Mana Gorger, uh, Hydra. There's a, a, I think I have like maybe 10 of them in a table in my book. <laughs> um, this is a new one. Um, unfortunately, I don't think this fares favorably with Delver of Secrets which is the immediate point of comparison, right? It's the one-mana spell. Uh, the, the problem, the fundamental problem with it is that you need... It's a big jump, right? You go from one to five, which is a big jump. It's bigger than one to three. But think, I think it's basically, this comes online roughly when Treasure Cruise comes online, mm-hmm. like turn 3.5. And even when that happens, you're going to have to pay probably more than one mana for it i mean this actually is the mana cost of treasure cruise right but it's probably a little it's a little bit more expensive than treasure cruise because it only counts sorceries and instants which means it doesn't count like the you know the artifact random artifact or creature or uh fetch lands or lands in your graveyard so it's a little bit more expensive than treasure cruise a little slower so it's probably a turn four card at the earliest to flip so to speak um so that's i think this is just too slow there's a couple of key upsides and a couple of key downsides. 
One of the things that you've talked about many, many times on the show before is part of the inherent value of Delver is the kind of set it and forget it part. You don't have to invest any more in Delver for it to do its thing. It's possible, sure, for Delver to, to not flip if you don't have deck manipulation or you get unlucky for a couple of turns, but it's it's fairly reliable to flip it. Your deck is designed to set the top of your deck thanks to things like all the cantrips, and also it requires no further mana investment to do. That was one of the big reasons why Delver was was effective against workshops, for example, was you could devote all your other resources to disrupting them and fending them off and removing their permanents. And the Delver would eventually flip, and then it would end the game post-haste. This card does not have that benefit. At some point in the mid-game, turns 3 to 5 against workshops, you're going to have to take a whole turn off to activate this thing. And that's simply not feasible in that kind of matchup. And worse, in several other matchups, like against Xerox, for example, it's a pretty big investment to put 3 to 5 mana into this thing in the mid-game and then watch them just pyroblast it, right? I think that example you drew out about how this plays out in workshops is particularly well put and i think it's particularly revealing and important because that is a a, a critical matchup in the vintage metagame and this is just really poorly positioned against taxing decks which is really where you want a lot of the, the the growing creatures to shine so um i think that's even this discounts it it's it's power even more i also would point out that it's it's marginal but not necessarily trivial, the incidental effects of um, revealing cards as you cycle through Delver's upkeeps is, is, can actually make a difference when you have a fetch land in play or a tutor or something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, so I think we're both reaching the same conclusion. I'm going to go with zero on Terramander. I just don't think same. the cost is, is good. Same. All right. Next up, we have Sphinx of Foresight going to be real fun talking about this steve for two uu you get a four four creature sphinx with flying you may reveal this card from your opening hand if you do scry three at the beginning of your first upkeep and also at the beginning of your upkeep scry one so that the first ability applies as a triggered ability at the beginning of the game then there's also a triggered ability every upkeep when the creature is in play where you get to scry wow what a card kevin no no doubt obviously this effect is has a ley line kind of feel to it but this particular construction and and the way this is designed is is wholly unique and also this spell like effect at the beginning of the game is just so incredibly interesting to me we've yes. we've never had anything quite like it but also no. i think correct me if i'm wrong yeah if you have two of these in your opening hand and you reveal them both you'll scry three twice <laughs> Let's Which slow down for a second, Kevin. Yeah, Let's, I, I like the, that. You, so you, anyway, we're going to have a hard time on. doing this with our normal mechanism because we're really not going to be talking about casting this card, right? <laughs> right. Right. Let's let's just take this a piece at a time because yeah. you're you're jumping ahead to cumulative, which I think one of the more interesting parts of this. <laughs> yeah, of this I, I, I agree. I agree. Um, let's just start with the first cl- the first sentence in this card, and I want to begin by just canvassing the cards that have this text that have been considered for vintage play or have seen vintage play. Okay? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Let's do this quickly. So, obviously, the ley lines, which you mentioned. Right. Serum powder. Yep. Uh, the the uh, chancellors. Yep. Uh, and there, by the way, there are a lot of ley lines now. I've, I've lost track of exactly how many, but there are like, I think, <laughs> maybe like 15 or something, right? Because there was the original ley line cycle, and then there was the ley lines that were printed in one of the core sets mm-hmm. that included ley line of sanctity that year we played them. Yep. So, 
Kevin, there are a disproportionate number of cards with these pregame effects have been considered for vintage or seen vintage play. Mm-hmm. And this one is the only one that actually manipulates the top of your library besides serum powder. Yeah, absolutely. Period. Yeah. <laughs> That's insanely powerful. <laughs> well, and, and serum powder does it in a very wholesale way, right? Right. Not, <laughs> there's no manipulation, so to speak. It's just right. a, it's, it's a, just remove that loaf. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. I think this, the, the, that's cool and unique, and it also facilitates a completely different type of thing as such, right? Right. So that first sen- that first sentence is enormously powerful. Scry three, Kevin. Three. Three's What's a lot. the significance of three to you? Um three the significance of three, I don't know how I don't know how you mean. I mean it's a very high so, number for scrying, and it means you're basically get to see four cards, theoretically, assuming you have access to the top card of your library if you didn't find it in the first three. Right. It's because you could bottom the the top three. Yeah. Yeah. That doesn't give um, you the fourth card, but it puts it puts right. it on cue. Uh, so I don't think I've ever scried three in the history of magic that I played. So so I don't even know exactly how that works. So let's just let me just un- make sure I understand this. <laughs> you're, you're funny. <laughs> um, so you would look at the top three, and you can bottom two. Yes. Bottom one. Bottom zero, one, two, or three. Uh, and you can reorder them in any way you want. Right. The top three. Yes, absolutely. That's incredible. So you could <laughs> you could powerful. bottom the third from the top and keep and and reverse the order of the first and second, for example. Uh, yes. Or you could put the third on top and put <laughs> and put the keep the second where it is and the first uh, move the first to the third, it, which you probably wouldn't do because you probably put the first to the bottom if you were going to do that. Steve, think of it like this: you're activating Sensei's Divining Top, and you can put any of them on the bottom also. Yes. <laughs> Good example. So so that I mean obviously that makes a big difference, right? The fact yeah. that you can just like bottom that. So now let's talk about this in multiples which you wanted to get to. So if you scry what it means is that it, if if in your first scry you want to keep all 3, it does the second one really doesn't have any effect. Right. At all. Right. But if you want to bottom one or two or all 3, the second one will allow you to dig however many however, and, and yeah. cards deeper yeah yes yeah so if this if you want to delve two scry if you want to put two to the bottom and just keep one yeah kind of like a uh what would that be like um it's like an impulse basically yeah. <laughs> then you're basically almost getting you get two more free looks that's yeah. pretty you'll, you'll have seen five cards potentially i mean two of them mean you it's incredible. You could potentially, if with all four, have seen twelve cards down. <laughs> it was serum powder. Yep. You could, you could with serum powder in this. How is that going to interact? You have to actually resolve all the mulligans first. So yes, you can't yeah. act. You can't reveal one of these after. Or sorry, before you've taken a serum powder. So if you serum powdered four times, Kevin, <laughs> <laughs> and then you have four of these in your in your final hand, that the maximum extent of deck manipulation is what exactly? Just as a kind of tri- tri- point of trivia. <laughs> well, it's, it's it's if you powdered four times that with seven cards, that's twenty eight cards, right? <laughs> and then you look at twelve cards from your four sphinxes. That's four. You could see forty out of sixty cards in your deck. Before you've taken a turn, four street wraith, and then (laughs) there you go. So, um, I do think it's probably what I think this suggests is that the marginal utility of the second one in your opening hand is actually going to be pretty decent. 
irrespective of the deck you're playing. But the marginal utility of a third is really low. I think really that, low. that has a, a fair amount to do also with what role the Sphinx plays in your what deck in general. What you're trying to do. Yeah, yeah, if it's just fixing, if, you're, if it's preordained, then you're absolutely right. The second one has a little bit of utility. The third one is vanishingly small. If it's Demonic Tutor, though, <laughs> I think they all have almost equivalent value. So, right. If you're just looking for Bazaar of Baghdad... Yeah, then they scale then linearly, I think. bottom, bottom, bottom yeah. until... Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Three cards when you're just looking for Bazaar of Baghdad. That is a big chunk. It is. That's a big chunk. It is. Also, interestingly, I, I haven't done the math on this, but my instincts tell me that if you are okay, so you're mulliganing too bizarre, right? Yeah. And it's not in your seven, and it's not in your six, and it's not in your five, and it's not in your four. When you get down to three, but there's a sphinx in the three, the sphinx is actually better than mulliganing any further. Oh my God, you're right. That's an excellent point. It's actually better than serum powder at that point, too. Yeah. I mean, because th- that the is serum- to say, it won't put it in your hand. So there, there's that told caveat, which is a big caveat. But you'll see more cards by keeping a sphinx than you will by mulliganing any further than three. So when, you, when you're when you down to three cards, Sphinx is better than Serum Powder to find Bizarre. Yeah. That's incredible. <laughs> but it, right? That's true, yeah. It's, it's, it's pretty interesting. Because, because the Serum Powder is just gross. It's just, like you said, it's just it just cleaves off the top, whereas yeah. this can actually, like... It, and, and that's not even counting the possibilities of, like, like what if you see bizarre and golgari grave troll right yeah, or like that's true y- y- yeah that's true and th- on the flip side too the sphinx makes bizarre hands way better right oh my god because how many times have you kept a bizarre oh. with like one dredger or no dredger yeah. right then you trigger the you sphinx can, and you're like oh none of these oh are dredgers either god. right it's almost like a time walk kevin. because you've just got another turn deeper in your deck kevin you're in pitch dredge mm-hmm. and you you do this and the force of will is the third card down. Yeah, you would not have seen it with the biz- with the bizarre, and you can bottom the, the the two cards that are bad. Like like let's say you see serum powder or something. Yeah, you know narcomiba. You can put those at the bottom immediately. Get to the juice. That's a good point. So this card is not only good for decks that like dredge are trying to find exactly one card because it just increases your odds of finding that. In the corner cases, basically. But it also facilitates decks that are powerfully amplified with certain intersections of cards, like Pitch Dredge is. Yes. To your point, exactly. that That's incredible, actually. I mean, it, the chances of you getting Force of Will on turn one with this in your deck go way up. Yeah. Now way we have up. to We have to temper this by the fact that we're, we're only talking about seeing Bizarre and potentially putting it on top of our deck, right? So how good is Dredge? when it's a Sphinx build and it passes the first turn without playing any cards, <laughs> right? How good is Dredge when it just goes, go, and then next turn I've got a Bizarre? So, so well, let's let's split that up into two scenarios. So, yeah. in the first scenario, you're you're scrying into the Bizarre. Yes. But in the second scenario, uh, let's say you don't have the Bizarre and you don't know it's there, but you kept your hand because you have multiple Sphinx. Let's say you kept a hand that has two Sphinx. Let's say you, you mold to four and kept a double Sphinx hand. You're, it seems to me your chances of finding bizarre are pretty good. Uh, well, I, I would have to do the hypergeometric, but yeah. But yeah. Th- more to the point, your your odds that that four card double sphinx hand is way better at finding bizarre than, than multi three, mul- right? Or or serum powder. <laughs> or powder, yeah. Yeah. But when we again, I just want to caveat when we say it's way better, we're talking about 
putting Bazaar at the top card of your deck, not into right, your hand. Into hand, right? Which you, is, so that leads to the second scenario, which is this: you're so much slower off the gun, yeah, off the off the uh, the starting pylon or the blocks. I'm not <laughs> enough of an expert in dredge to talk about matchup by matchup how this favors you. It feels like against decks where you're already good, this pushes your win percentage up even further. Like. Game one against Jeskai. <laughs> Win more. <laughs> you're, you, you're, I think you're even better game one against Jeskai if that's Agreed. even possible, right? Yeah. Because I mean, you're you just, find exactly what you need. It's 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 Xerox. It's what Xerox does, but you're beating them at their own game. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, with the combination of this and Bizarre is just absurd. It's absurdity. Um, let me ask you something though, Kevin. Are we just considering this a blank card that only has the first two sentences? Is that basically a, bl- I mean, a blank blue card? It's a, a pe- yeah, it's, it's Evermind. <laughs> <laughs> The fact that it pitches to force is not not immaterial. Yeah, that's it's, why it's I highly said, relevant. Yeah, that's why I said a, a blank, a, a blue, blank card. blue card yeah. that um that that has just the first two sentences. Well, I don't know that we want to just limit it to that though. I think that I think that honestly, this is not easily playable. But in a in a larger mana dredge deck, it is castable. I think so. In the in the kind of dredge deck that has Riftstone Portal or something, you could definitely construct it such that you could cast this. But right, that's a that's a major. It, that's like a major secondary tertiary parachute, right? That's <laughs> yeah. It's agreed. almost not worth considering. Sure. What about somewhere else, though? What about an, let's come back to dredge because yeah. we we're gonna dive even deeper. But before I just want to continue our evaluation because we haven't even talked about it as a four four flyer mm-hmm. that has a, a a not terrible upkeep. Yeah, it's useful. Um, I mean, this is the Jace the the mind sculptor mana cost, mm-hmm. which is obviously Jace is phenomenal, but. Jace can't do this before the game begins. So what if you were playing, I don't want to say, like, a, not Ad Nauseam, because this is terrible with Ad Nauseam, but an yeah. Ad Nauseam-type deck, where you, like, a, a black combo deck, where you really need a couple of cards, but you don't want to play Serum Powder. Can this? There you go. Wow. So, <laughs> what do you think? I think it's or show not... And t- show it, and tell. Is another combo deck. Show and tell is a good example, yeah. yeah. In the case of Doomsday, it's it's Doomsday is so material light that it's not worth the opportunity cost of having effectively a blank in your hand i feel like this i feel like this in terms of combo decks or decks trying to assemble a specific combination this is only applicable when you really win the game by finding that one card and doomsday is not that kind of deck doomsday needs a certain density of material to disrupt their opponent and safely go off right Ad nauseum was closer to that, but for the reasons you already stated, this card's bad in that deck. I think the other end of the spectrum, the other end of the spectrum, is decks that benefit from the fixing and smoothing early in the game, and then can actually make use of this the the rest of this card on the long term. Something like Landstill, where Ooh. you may actually want to cast this card, and the yes. fact that this does its work er- on on turn one and doesn't leave your hand <laughs> means you can sit in there and pitch it to force, or you can just chip away at controlling the game thanks to the improved draw you have right and then cast this on turn five six seven kevin if your opponent is playing um uh a a control deck and they activate this before the game begins yes doesn't that affect your basic calculus of how to interact i mean doesn't it make you so much more confident they have the counter spells they have at the beginning of the game um yes barring what choices they make with the scry right if they go right. bottom, 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 then that's, true. that doesn't change my calculus that much. 
But yeah, absolutely. If they keep one, if they keep two, I'm thinking. Assuming Phew. they're on the draw, of course. Yeah, yeah. naturally. But I uh, yes, it, t- it totally changes my calculus as to whether or not I can fire off my ancestral early in the game, right? Whether or not some key spell early is going to resolve, absolutely. I'm definitely going to assume that they have better answers on the on the critical early turns. So this is potentially interesting as a control card, but its most obvious application is in dredge. Mm-hmm. So let's dive back. We've now that we've kind of like surveyed possible applications. Uh, I do I do like the, how this can make you go real deep in, in, in a combo deck when you're really trying to just dig efficiently. I mean, yeah. this does it for free. There's no mana involved. That's key. So, Actually, I think that, that's really key. But there's opportunity cost involved. Definitely. You're and, losing a card in hand. You don't it's card disadvantage. Um despite the fact that it's so deep, it's still card disadvantage. Here's, say, I would say I would caveat that though. It's card disadvantage unless you have a way to turn this blank blue card into value. And decks like right. Pitch Dredge do. Good point. Good it point. Would, it's not like it's not like when you use this, it goes to the graveyard. Right. It's, uh, that's <laughs> what I was trying exiling. to get at earlier. Is yeah. It provides its value while remaining in your hand. What which also how, how amazing would this card be if it was also black? Then you could remove it to an Icarid <laughs> or, or unmask. Holy, it's still, wow. I mean, the fact that it can be pitched to force is pretty it's amazing. Yeah, it's yeah. I'm just getting greedy um, now. Yeah, you want this to be a gold, a gold blue-black <laughs> card. Um, so here's the thing that I want to observe that I think might happen. Mm-hmm. For since the inception of since the printing of Dread Return, Dredge decks have had serum powder in them. Right? The Dredge decks before Dread Return didn't run Serum Powder because you needed a bigger mana base. Mm-hmm. Like you could go just like with Dread Return, you didn't need any mana at all to win the game. Right. right. But before Dread Return, you actually needed land. <laughs> so you just played Consult, Vamp, Crop Rotation, that kind of thing to find Bazaar. Um, and and you didn't always rely on Bazaar. You used like Putrid Imp and other things to get the dredging going. And you yeah. did careful study and brainstorm. Um, my question is this. Every every dredge deck since since Time Spiral has had serum powder in some quantity, usually max. Does this card change that calculus? That is, is it possible that at the like a year from now, dredge specialists in the dredge school of magic come to the conclusion that the proper ratio for optimizing dredge draws and dr- finding bizarre is like two serum powder? Four Sphinx or something like that. <laughs> Seriously, it's a serious question. Is do you think that's a possibility, or do you think this can never displace? Like, is some combination of this and, and serum powder superior to just four serum powder or four serum powder plus this? That is the, some sub number I of four serum powder. I don't think the math is in favor of what you're proposing, just because of how powerful powder for seven and six and five is. This card is is great, and it bolsters that, but. Dredge is capable of being successful to the degree that it is because of serum powder today. Yeah. You can't take away the benefit that powder gives, and then this is this is a, a, a faint replacement of that. So I, I think the answer is no, but I do think yeah. that there is value in considering how this shores up, this sphinx shores up um, the, so, the corner cases and the, and the bad outcomes, because we're always looking for cards that help you when you're behind or when you're in a bad situation. So what that hold on I want to get to that point you just made but I, yeah. so but just from a deck construction perspective you're saying that you don't think this will ever replace uh powder it will just only supplement was what I was getting at yes, which is, is fine that is my conclusion which means that you starting with four serum powder and then you're adding some number of these if you are yeah but the reason I asked that is because 
I mean, well, obviously, serum, mar- serum powders have marginal value. Like, the second powder is better than the first. In so- I mean, it, rather, the, f- the, the second <laughs> powder is boosted by the first one, right? Yes. <laughs> it, it, when um, you're trying to find a single card, the second one is actually more effective at doing so, yes. Yeah. Assuming so, they're for the same number. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Whereas the second one of this is weaker. So it actually does make sense that maybe the, maybe like some optimal dredge deck a year from now plays four powder and like two of this card. What do you think of that? Um, You just said that the second one. Of th- okay. So I, I'm not convinced on that. I want to tease that out. You said the second one of these well, I'm just, is I'm not just as trying good to imagine, as the first. If, you, if we believe that powder is non-negotiable and, and, and from a design deck construction point of view, you're going to always include four. The floor the, the floor on powder is four. Uh-huh. And then you add this on top of that floor. I'm wondering, how do you scale? You start, you, is it one, two, three, four? Um, you know, it, it, because it's hard to imagine just jamming in four of these. Maybe you can, but it's harder to do that if, the, if you're like the third and fourth powder are, are categorical inclusions. <laughs> um. <laughs> I I guess I agree with you in the sense that there's certainly opportunity cost in the dredge lists. The cards are so purposefully chosen, and I don't want to dismiss that. But I also I don't agree that like the these things have as much diminishing returns in a deck like dredge, where your goal is to find a single card. I think every one of these carries the same weight in the sense that when you need these, yeah. Got you, it. you want as many of them as you can. The yeah. <laughs> like when I'm mulliganing to four and I open my hand to four, I want freaking four Sphinx of Foresight in that hand. Well, well that's <laughs> as why. As long as there's no bizarre, I want all of them to be this card. <laughs> you know, I overstated something earlier. It's not every dredge deck since, since Time Spiral has had four serum powders. There have been, I've seen lots of top eights where they're like some with three main deck. I remember I, a few of those, yes. Yeah. And, and also, there was the mana version that had breakthrough for a while and LED. But Kevin, what I'm trying to get at is, and maybe this version's like that. Like you can you can find breakthrough or bizarre, and yeah. this helps you do that, right? True. But what I'm trying to get at is, is there some complex permutation that a supercomputer would figure out that'll take humans a lot longer to figure <laughs> out? Where there is a sub, I I think there's a possibility of that. That there's a sub number of fo- sub four serum powder combination with this because. There's just some mathematical formula where, where when you start mulliganing, you know, like when you get to sub five cards, this this becomes so strong that it actually become its power grows beyond serum powder. Mm. Well, I, I think I see your point. I can't really uh, refute what you're saying, but I just feel like the floor is is still four on the powders because powder. of how because of, even with this because 100 percent of games of Magic start with seven cards in your first choice. You may never get below five. I mean, okay, you're not guaranteed to get below five, and I think on average you don't because of how strong serum powder is in dredge. Okay, so let's just talk about dredge as it currently is. The second place list in a recent challenge mm-hmm. was pitch dredge, and the list was uh, four force, four misstep, four mind break trap, four powder, four bridge, four ley line, four bizarre, four therapy, two dread return, Ashen Rider. Dragonlord Kolagon, four Grave Troll, one Gorgari Thug, four Hollow One, three Icarid, four Narc Amoeba, four Prized Amalgam, four Stinkweed Imp. That's a pretty tight list. Hard to make room for Sphinx, especially if the primary function of it is finding Bizarre, and Serum Powder does that so well. True. Yeah. It's hard uh, to figure out what you would even begin to cut there. <laughs> I, I'm with you. I guess I would argue that one of the Icarids 
and maybe one of the counter spells, one of the mind break traps. Yeah. And uh, I don't have enough dredge expertise to point to what are the cards that are the most marginal, but that's how I feel. And so it doesn't strike me as too difficult to come up with space for two. Four is a bit of a reach, but you have to understand, I think you have to compensate a little bit for the fact that the digging power that this card provides amplifies the efficacy of all your other cards, right? Yes, exactly right. Yeah. Your example of uh, Force of Will being the fourth card down is, is perfect, right? Even if you've got a bizarre hand, the presence of a Sphinx in that hand makes all of your Force of Wills in your deck that much better. Because it's a blue card means the Sphinx just has to find the Force, and then the Force inherently has the food, right? This card just amplifies Force of Will incredibly in that deck. And similarly, you can have matchup specific knowledge about how good individual counters are. You don't want Mind Break Trap against Jeskai, right? Bad example, you're already, right. you're already really ahead right. in that matchup. You don't want Mental Misstep against Shops game one, right? So if you know your matchup and you get the Sphinx, you just bottom that misstep, right? So I mean, let's the say, incremental yeah. uh, amplification of every other card in the deck, I think, is worth addressing. So here's another thing that matters. I, I, I completely agree with you. I think you're making a very important point where Sphinx uh, at the margins improves, it, it kind of sculpts the hand immediately because of the way it interacts with Bizarre Baghdad. Mm-hmm. Yes. And and makes your hand strategically more impactful off the off the blocks. Yes. But here's another thing that Sphinx does, and I don't know how much this really matters, but it, it certainly has to matter at some point. Mathematically, with Four Serum Powder, uh, you, your ability to find Bizarre Baghdad reliably is only uh, <laughs> about 94%. Yeah. Sphinx has the potential to Im- non- non-trivially improve that percentage yeah i don't know by what percentage but it, it if it gets you if if adding three sphinx okay let me just put it in, in game terms <laughs> yeah suppose you play a vintage tournament yep and you play 20 games during the course of the day which is not bad for a longish you know like sure. for a, a good where you may be like a five six round tournament where you make top eight you might play 20 games you are mathematically expected to mulligan to oblivion at least one game yep if you if adding a couple of Sphinx reduces that mulligan to oblivion expected to under half a game. That Huge. means exactly. That means you could potentially win a match that you lost. Yeah, that's a really good point. I'm, I'm glad you put it into those terms because that's what I exactly what I was thinking of in terms of that whole mulliganing below four business. Once you get into the range of four, three, two, one, the Sphinx really shines. And, and those not gonna are, be as scared either. <laughs> yeah, and, and those but and yeah, and those are the times when you really want help, right? Yes. <laughs> those are the times when it makes a huge difference. There is one problem though with that. Okay. It can't help you find Leyline of the Void in the mirror. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's totally true. Yeah. So so what do you think of that? What do you think of that I mean the fact that it could put, virtually eliminate your mulligans to oblivion? It, it's not just that too. It could that that's huge. Also, it has an outsized effect the the smaller your starting hand is. Right. right? If your starting so hand you is three, so you can mulligan ca- more aggressively too. Not yeah, just but for- if your starting hand is three cards, scry three is enormous. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. If your starting hand is two cards, you're scrying for more than your hand size. I mean, this is why when I asked the question just a few minutes ago. What would you cut? I think that you're right. I think that you could cut a couple of mind break trap from the pitch deck mm-hmm. because you're going to be so much more reliably finding force and misstep. Yeah. Like if you cut two mind break traps for two Sphinx, you're going to re- like very reliably yeah. have counter magic on turn one. So 
I don't have the mathematics to um, to answer this question, so I'm asking it with full disclosure that I, I don't actually have a good answer myself. But Steve, how many sphinxes would need to be in your hand of, let's say, six in order for you to keep rather than multiply? Uh, that's the that's the really annoying question. <laughs> um, okay, the first question is: Have we powdered so far this game? Let's say no, just to make it easier. No, we've not powdered. Right, and I'm at six. Yep. And I have one sphinx in my hand. No, no. I, that's, I know. I'm just imagining. Okay. If I had one, if I had two sphinx in my hand, I would snap keep. I, I don't because agree that, because it's functionally equivalent to a serum powder. There, uh, I, I don't agree because of the difference between putting the card in your hand versus being on top of your library. Good point. I mean, with two sphinxes, granted, you can see six cards, six cards slash and seven. You'll have access to a seventh. Yeah. Wait, wait, and but you'll mulligan. No, hold on. The mulligan you get to scribe before the game begins first. Granted. Then you then you get to so you'll see the top card and you can bottom that if that's not bizarre. Yep. Then then you reveal this two sphinxes so you'll have you'll get to eight the eighth card. Yeah. Which is better than a mulligan to five to five in my opinion. Well, the mulligan to five you're going to get to see six cards. Sphinx, including the scry, and you might have it, a serum powder and another sphinx in your hand. Yeah. So that's tricky actually. It I, is. I don't know. So I, I think, think with, the, I think I with, think with one, two mulligan, sphinxes in a six card hand you still multiply. So you would certainly mulligan with just one. Yes. What about with what about with three in the with six card? Three, hand? it becomes <laughs> tough, right? Interesting. Yeah. Um, so I, I love this question because the thing I don't understand enough about dredge, like I said before, I don't know the matchups well enough to know if you could guarantee me not guarantee, if you could give me real high odds, you know, eighty plus percent odds that I'm gonna have a bizarre odds the top card of my library, which matchups <laughs> is that is that good enough in? <laughs> Right, you said eighty percent. Yeah, yeah. I'm just throwing that out there as a, a starting yeah. point. But well, you, I, I, yeah. If you could tell me, I'm eighty percent to have Bizarre as the top card in my library, and then the construction of my hand is any random collection of cards. That's basically. not high enough, I think. <laughs> yeah, but well, but, that, but that's oh, sorry, but that's like in addition to um, what am I trying to say? In addition to the Bizarres in my opening sevens. Right, like yeah. all the all the opening sevens with bizarre plus another eighty percent of the time, it just gets to be the top card <laughs> in my library. Unreal. Yeah. Um. I we don't have the answers to that. No. But I, I if don't. you want to spin that on any further, that's fine. I I wanted to point out one other thing. Other thing though, we haven't even touched on yet. So we talked we talked about how it could it supplements serum powder. We talked about how it can potentially eliminate that mulligan to one scenario. We talked about how it's phenomenal once you've mulligan sub five. Yep. Even better than powder. We talked about how it works in multiples. We talked about how unique the card is. The one thing we have, and we talked about how it can allow you to manipulate the top of your library so that your first turn bizarre is just so much more powerful mm-hmm. um, immediately off the blocks. But the one thing we haven't talked about that I think may be actually the most important feature of all of those, Kevin. Yeah. Even even more important than all of them. Maybe even more important than all of them combined. <laughs> okay. Is how good it is post-board when you need a specific answer. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So when you are... It actually could totally change the sideboard dynamics because you can do it... Um, you know, your opponent opens with Leyline. You yeah. know exactly what you need to get. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, uh, it's so good against Leyline because they it's have to show so you the Leyline before this happens. It's so and good against Leyline. That's really interesting. Yeah. That... that I mean, the, the ability... And think about it. Against Dredge, we know that most of the games are post board anyway. Mm-hmm. That's those are the games that matter. Mm-hmm. If if it, what if this card adding it four of them in 
systematically increases your post-board win percentage by just, let's say, 3% across the board. That's Because huge. it gets you how... That's, that's the difference between top 32 and winning tournaments. Yeah, absolutely. Serious. Yeah, you're right. That's the difference between X2 and X1 and 1 yep. and being in that top 8. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> no, you're, you're, you're totally right. Wow. You're, I, you you're right. The, the post-sideboard implications are enormous. So I said it's potentially bigger than everything else we talked about. <laughs> yeah, that's really, Combined. really interesting. Holy I mean, the moly. Fa- the f- fact that you can... And not only that, it's like you can... S- just scrape away the stuff that doesn't immediately matter. You yeah. can bottom serum powders. You can bottom Ashen Rider. You can bottom Dragon Lord Colagon. You can bottom all that junk. Oh, and also, it's a complete nightmare for people who hate Hollow One. It dramatically increases the number of double Hollow Ones on turn one that you'll see. <laughs> that's true. That, and that's <laughs> just, big enough post sideboard in and of itself, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, imagine your top three cards just are like, let's just say you, you've you found Bazaar in the first shot, yeah. and your top three cards are um just imagine serum powder <laughs> mind break trap hollow one yeah the the hollow one that's that third card you'll now see it immediately that's a good point that's a really good point is that yeah you get access to that third card down or further obviously but yes. but even in that simple example yeah that that makes that hollow one come out in turn 1 instead of turn 2 that's like a time walk it's <laughs> insane <laughs> <laughs> wow you know how they say everything's a time walk? <laughs> Scry 3 on your upkeep <laughs> is a time walk. <laughs> wow. I mean, look, this is this is a fascinating discussion, but I yeah. think we should cut I it think, short. I mean, there I are, so, there are tons of mathematical implications that we don't have the time or the resources to go into at this moment, and, and nor should we really. I, I look forward to the community examining these things further and, and teasing out some of the things that we've just anal- analyzed off the cuff about the effect on moles to 3 and 4, etc., I think it's fascinating. I think it's awesome. So let's let's go prediction time, right? So we need a, a heuristic basically for the level of dredge, right? So what's what's the dredge percentage that you said from January in the challenges? Was it uh, nine? Nine <laughs> percent? Um, in January, dredge was nine uh, percent of top eights. Yeah, that's right. Okay. So what does that tell you about? And 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 just if going back a little bit further, if you'd like to know, yeah, dredge was. In the entire entire Q4 of 2018, Dredge was 10.6%. That's October, November, December. It, it averaged 11%. Yeah, so that's that's three decks a month, right? Three Dredge decks a month, if that's uh, the, the average. Yeah, that's about right. Because 10% of 32 top eight lists, right? Yeah, that's Give right. Give or take, yeah. Yep. So, and we don't expect 100% of Dredge players to adopt this. Far from it. They're not all pitch Dredge lists to begin with, and we know the utility varies just in our brief analysis here. But let's say the floor, I mean, the floor is zero still, right? Let's be honest. The floor is zero. <laughs> this the is floor the kind is of, definitely zero, yeah. yeah. And the ceiling, there's, an, the, the ceiling is maybe in, in the near term is maybe half to two thirds. The ceiling is, you know, four to six, maybe. And I genuinely can't imagine That's any other, right. any other Dredge. archetypes, um, really taking this up, despite some comments that we made about land still and that kind of I, thing. I was going to say three to four. Yeah. That seems what reasonable you, to me. I'll, I'll take the over. I'll go four. What do you, what's your prediction? Yeah, it, it's, it's really interesting. So my prediction is I'll take the under on that. But okay. I'm hesitant for one reason, and that is if the community of dredge players in Vintage at large comes to some conclusions about what effect this has on game win percentages, right? 
it could be <laughs> yep. that by the time we record There's our next wave. show, this yeah. is just a four of automatically. There's a risk that this yep. goes in 100% of dredge decks as a four of by the time we're doing our report card. And I don't know how likely that is, but I, I think it's non-zero. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I yes, feel like I this do. is polarizing. I feel like we should be either predicting zero, like one, zero, one, two, or we should be predicting ten. Nine. Nine. Yeah. yeah. Or, or more with paper. Well, and, and if, I think you're, and if I think dredge right. actually becomes materially better, it might push the dredge number up to 15% or something. I don't my, know. My four is implicitly a bet that, pe- that this is a late bloomer. Which That's is, basic. I think, reasonable. But at the same time, this is not the kind of card that people need to like play with to get a feel for how good it is, right? Dredge? Yeah. A lot of dredge players in the dredge <laughs> community at large are are mathematically based, right? A lot of the work in the history of Dredge is based on how does this increase my odds for X, Y, and Z. And I, this is the kind of card that you evaluate that way. Yes, you get some anecdotal evidence. Yes, the first time someone scries three and then draws four so well, they're going to be like, this card is amazing. But I would also feel just like there's a powerful justification from a mathematical standpoint that a, a subset of players are going to glom onto. And that could cause that could cause everyone to jump ship. <laughs> the reverse of jump ship. Everyone to jump on board. I don't know. I'm I'm of I'm of two minds on this thing. I think the right bet is either two or twelve. <laughs> I don't think there's actually anywhere in between. I'm serious. <laughs> I I believe you. I believe you. I think you have a very logical argument. I'm not making an I'm making an argument that's based more on pattern than logic. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, and I'm overstating things a little bit. The odds of everyone jumping on board on this is probably pretty slim. Um. But the more I talk myself into it, I'm actually going to take the over. I'm going to I'm going to take the over by a bit and wow. say and say six. Oh, jeez, yeah. uh, bold prediction, Kevin. This this uh, <laughs> this uh, episode. So I like you, it. You said four. Well, I did. Okay. All right. I'll take six. All right. All right. We got to move on though. Let's talk about electro dominance. X R R for an instant. Electro dominance deals X damage to any target. You may cast a card with converted mana cost X or less from your hand without paying its mana cost. This is an incredibly fun card, in my opinion, and it's gotten a lot of press uh, thanks to its potential applications in Modern, where people are wont to cast things like Ancestral Visions and Hypergenesis and Living End, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. There's no two ways about it. This card allows you to cast Ancestral Vision, if it's in your hand, for RR. Now, it's not quite as sexy because you're you're only going to be plus one card as opposed to plus two from like Ancestral Recall because you, you had to ditch the Electro Dominance as well. But uh, there's just no two ways about it. This lets you play some of those suspend cards for, for otherwise normal mana costs. I know that Saffron Olive was testing a Restore Balance deck in Vintage leading up to the VSL that he ultimately decided not to play. But, um, but I think... He talked about it during the pregame, but I didn't get to listen to all of that because I was prepping for my match. But I do know that he concluded that it didn't match up well against the rest of the metagame. So we've got a little bit of information from his perspective in that regard. Steve, what do you think about the notion of ostensibly cheating these cards with no mana costs onto the stack? And or is there another application that you think really catches your eye? Well, I think it's it is certainly possible to cheat cards. What I'm stuck on is the fact that this is fork X. <laughs> how do you but mean the, well the mana cost is red red x yeah um but you don't have to pay anything for x if the spell you're planning to cast off of it um has no mana cost or is zero right 
Right. So if you want to cast Wheel of Fate, you just need to pay RR and have Wheel R. of Fate in your hand. Well, can you think of, uh, besides Wheel of Fate and, and Restore Balance and Ancestral Visions, I guess they allow you to do it immediately, but... Yeah, um, this is an instant, too, and allows you to yeah. break timing rules, because all those suspend cards were sorceries. What about the um, non? What about the non-suspend cards, but the cards that... um No, those aren't going to work. Never mind. Hmm. I was thinking of, like, Temporal... Uh, uh, the temporal mastery that kind oh, of card but yeah the, the miracles that kind of yeah, thing doesn't, doesn't apply here no it technically works you just have to pay the full mana yeah. I, I i'm i'm very bearish on this card but i mm-hmm. would i i love the thought of someone exploiting those cards to try and make this work that's what i'll say yeah well that's fair i do think it's really interesting so there's a cycle of these five right ancestral visions is ancestral recall hypergenesis is eureka living end is living death Restore Balance is Balance. Wheel of Fate is Wheel of Fortune. Plus, you get Lotus Bloom, too, which is Black Lotus. Uh, it's not really any kind of... You're just turning your Electro-Dominance into a ritual to cast a Lotus Bloom, so I don't I think we can discount that one right away. Living End, I don't think, has any application in Vintage just because there's already so much implicit graveyard hate thanks to Dredge that the deck will have an uphill battle and be inferior to Dredge along the way. Hypergenesis is an interesting one, and it has shares some DNA with um, show and tell based oath decks, but the problem with hypergenesis really is that you have to have a certain density of of bombastic high mana or high impact cards in your deck, such that your draws are very um, highly varied. And you, if you don't get the exact combination of electro dominance and hypergenesis, you're, you'd have some show and tells as well. But you're going to have a high variance deck. I think that leaves three candidates really. Ancestral Vision, while potentially immediately attractive, right? Everybody loves their Ancestral Recall. The efficacy and the benefit of it is is really hampered by the fact that you're sinking two cards into it. If you go RR and discard two cards and draw three, well, you may as well have just played Cathartic Reunion for the same effect. <laughs> so really, I think there's only two candidates that are really potentially going to shine. Restore Balance, which has a lot of potential in terms of the fact that it can be uh, aggressively played to make your opponent discard their hand, and it can be reactively played to remove their board if they have creatures and lands, etc. And then the the greatest ceiling is Wheel of Fate, which is Wheel of Fortune. You could potentially string together accelerants in a draw seven fashion and go off on turn one just by repeatedly playing RR. Interesting. Vis-a-vis rituals and manamorphos and other things. So honestly, I think Seth, that is Saffron Olive's uh, original exploration, was probably the most reliable one in the Restore Balance because it's it can be good when you're ahead and good when you're behind. Mm-hmm. And I know that he tweeted about something where he had Greater Gargadon in play too, which is uh, some good synergy with that card. You can suspend the Gargadon and then sack your board and then balance, and then Gargadon comes out later when your opponent ostensibly has no permanence. <laughs> <laughs> um but I trust his assessment and testing in that it didn't pan out that well. And so I'm going to benefit a little bit from the cheating we have of being so late in our set review here. I'm inclined to think that there's nothing to this. However, I have one caveat to that, and that is, I wonder if you can construct a deck that just incidentally uses Electrodominance and incidentally mm. gains its benefit, because it is still just like a little instant speed, slightly overpriced fireball. And you could play um rr1 to destroy a snapcaster mage and just toss a free preordain onto the stack that's a good point so reactions to that that sounds plausible i mean either one of the uh, plausible in the sense that it's it it doesn't sound uh immediately impossible (laughs) (laughs) i think i take your meaning (laughs) yeah 
So I guess what I'm getting at is I don't think electrodominance is good enough to add to chess guy or rug. Right, definitely just, not. Yeah, it's just horribly inefficient, really. Yeah. It's not a good enough removal spell. If it was flexible enough, like a, I don't know, like a fireball to hit multiple targets or something, then we might be talking, but it's not. It's one target, and it scales badly. However, if you had it in a deck where you could be really proactive and aggressive, like with a restore balance on turn one, and really wreck your opponent, that's something. If you could do it in such a way that you also could play a longer game and restore balance on turn three, four, five, or whatever to buy back tempo and really wreck them, well, we might be onto something. That's that play is has inherent flaws against things like paradoxical outcome, which doesn't need a high density of lands or creatures to win, and it also has inherent flaws to the um, spheres because out of workshops because you'd have to pay extra for both halves of the thing you're doing with a sphere in play which really stinks good point i guess in the end i would say this is this effect is it's a little too inefficient that's a little too gimmicky from a, a you have to collect the cards in your hand and it has a few too many inherent weaknesses to the format to the sum total is just not powerful enough to overcome those weaknesses what do you say steve are you on board I, I, i'm yeah i don't think this is playable i mean I just don't think this will see play. I love the idea of being able to use it to abuse, to you know, to create a cool deck like you described, but I just mm-hmm. don't see it. All right, fair enough. Zeros across the board for Electrodominance, then. Next, light up the stage. Now, the mana cost on this card is 2R. It's a sorcery that says, exile the top two cards of your library until the end of your next turn, you may play those cards. Of note, the only reason we're discussing this card is because it has Spectacle for R, We didn't do a mechanics review yet, but Spectacle says you may cast this spell for its Spectacle cost rather than paying its mana cost if an opponent lost life this turn. So if you can finagle it such that your opponent has lost life, then you can pay R, exile the top two cards of your library, and you can play them until the end of your next turn, which is pretty generous, honestly. This is, I don't know if it's the first exactly, but the model for exile cards and then you can play them by, by and large is do it until the end of this turn. Until the end of next turn is pretty generous. I like it. <laughs> so obviously, there's a number of limitations with this card, but there's also a number of benefits. One of the limitations is that the spectacle cost has to be enabled with your opponent losing life, which means your deck probably needs ways to damage your opponent proactively. Now, it's magic. That's not that hard to do. It's vintage, though. And in a vintage context, there's actually a pretty narrow set of things that could re- readily accomplish that. Yeah, You could put together a young Pyromancer-based deck, you could splash this into a workshop deck or something, but honestly, the notion of just damaging your opponent is pretty far outside the realm of quality play in, in Vintage. You don't actually have to damage them, though. I mean, every deck does self-damage. Blue decks play Force of Will and Fetchlands. Yep. Workshop plays Ancient Tomb. Yep. Uh, uh, everything does damage. Basically, every deck has Ancient Tomb or, <laughs> or Force of Will in the in the format. Yeah. Um, so no. you, you, you how can often ex- are they tapping ancient tomb on your turn? That's the problem. <laughs> That's the problem is that it's, is that the timing is the trick. Yeah. So I was, I was going to get to that and you're absolutely right. Most decks in format damage themselves or that is pay life at some point. Ancient tomb, I think doesn't really need to qualify here. If you caught them doing it on your turn, then more power to you, but that's the vast minority of the time. Force of will and mental misstep though, plus fetch lands. Now those are good candidates. However, fetch lands are more often than not used like on the end step, right? And as soon as your opponent knows you're playing light up the stage, it dramatically changes their willingness to affect their life total on your turn. So a lot of the incidental advantages are going to quickly dry up. Fetch lands are going to be activated on their turn more often. 
or, or held into your end step. Uh, mental missteps are going to be paid for with blue just that much more often, right? So I think those opportunities are not going to be as prevalent as you might at first think, even though life loss is omnipresent in the format. The other limitation I can see is that you need a deck where being compelled to play the top two cards in your library is advantageous the vast majority of the time, and that means you're limited in being reactive. Uh, if you exile a force of will with this or a mental misstep, your opponent gets to play around them, right? And their their efficacy is going to be that much diminished. If you exile lightning bolts and such, then you're able to play them right away proactively. But it's been a long time since a deck filled with just burn and aggressive creatures was was reliably successful in vintage. True. You basically can't play you know a modern burn deck in vintage. It's just not reliable. It's not fast enough to beat the combo decks. It's not disruptive enough against any of the control decks. Your best matchup is probably Xerox, where you you could burn some people out every once in a while, but you're still only going to win about 20% of your matches in a tournament. (laughs) I think the best possible home for Light Up the Stage is in two places. One is a potential combo deck that had some incidental way to damage your opponent, and that's real hard for me to figure out. And the other one is simply in, in a more aggressive Delver kind of shell, like the Harsh Mentor decks we saw two years ago, where you, you have more proactive interaction, removal and lightning bolts and such. Your counter spells are limited to just the bare minimum, and your creatures are have incidental damage built in, like Harsh Mentor or Young Pyromancer or Delver. With that kind of creature base... Yeah, you, you can could control ex- when you do damage yeah. more reliably. You could expect to enable Spectacle a little more proactively with that creature base. Uh, maybe toss in a Grim Lavamancer or something, too. <laughs> a card that was once a Type 1 quite uh, effective as a tactic. Yes, absolutely. I loved Grim Lavamancer. So all that to me says this card is too difficult to maximize, and the decks that could maximize it are heavily disadvantaged in the format, conceptually. But the Exile is nice. How it do you is mean? Well, it, 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 it evades the things like Spirit of the Labyrinth, you know, it evades. Oh, sure. You've got a um, notion you've got thief. A, an, an Uba mask or notion thief or yeah. yeah, any of that kind of Leovold. It 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 gets over that. Good point. This does evade all of those common draw disruptors in the format, which is kind of nice. Also, it's it functions as a one mana spell that can't be mental misstepped. That's valuable. True. <laughs> yeah. So you can't pyroblast it or mental misstep it, it which means the ways that something like Jeskai has to stop it are are limited. And the full mana cost isn't actually that bad. It's just not. That's a good point. It's not totally unreasonable. And because you can, because this is so generous and gives you until your next turn to play this, in a pinch, you could just tap out on turn two, land, land, mox, just light up the stage <laughs> and hope that the cards you get are, are going to be useful to you on the, either on their turn or yours. Mental misstep is not terrible to flip to this. It's not great, but it's not terrible. Force of Will, you can still pitch a card in your hand to cast the Force of Will from Exile. And if you've constructed your deck such that it has young Pyromancers and stuff, you can, you could potentially have things like Pyroblast in your deck and still proactively play them just to make elementals with a young Pyromancer. This card doesn't play very well with Dak Faden, unfortunately. Ah, uh, good point. Yeah. So it's a little anti-synergy there with the popular, the most popular red-blue card in Magic. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the greatest thief in the multiverse just has a hard time stealing stuff from the lit up stage. (laughs) 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 When all the lights are on him, he just kind of says, yeah, you can keep that. Yep. Uh, What do you think, Steve? Are you going to be putting any energy into developing for this card or this kind of deck? I shall not be. 
I shall not be. I'm not either. I'm not. I wouldn't put it past uh, some folks. I I know a couple of players who had some good results with the Harsh Mentor deck locally, for example. And uh, I could see maybe a tiny resurgence in that plus Delver, perhaps. And uh, it has some certain advantages. It can really rough up a good Jeskai player pretty well. But yeah, on average, those decks, um, I don't think they benefit too much by pushing more aggressive in order to facilitate spectacle which is hmm. kind of what this card requires. As such, I think I'm going to go with zero. Zero for you as well? Correct. Next up, Cindervines. Mana cost of red-green. Enchantment. Whenever an opponent casts a non-creature spell, Cindervines deals one damage to that player. And for colorless and sacrifice Cindervines, destroy target artifact or enchantment, Cindervines deals two damage to that permanent's controller. Well, it's an enchantment. A green-red <laughs> enchantment. There aren't a lot of uh, uh, playables in this template. <laughs> Good point. I mean, it's been a, it's been like fires of Yamavai and standard since we've had green-red enchantments. <laughs> it's really done anything in Magic it, that I can think of. Um, but we do have an imminently playable so, green-red card in Ancient Grudge, for example. True, true. So this this casting cost is yeah. Well, Ancient Grudge is not exactly green-red at the mana cost. No. But, I take your point. Close enough. Um, so there's two effects here. The first one is 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 actually not horrible by itself, which is pretty funny. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's it's obviously the not the core reason this would be played, but um, actually, I, I would argue that it's matchup dependent. Which of these two halves of the card is the core reason? <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> like against Jeskai, I don't need this bottom ability at all. Well, what this top ability is. It, true. This top <laughs> ability is is basically an inverse tendrils, right? It's like you get it down and then you play spells, and 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 just in the course of playing spells, your opponent is going to be bled out. Yeah. The second ability is more conventionally just uh, it's basically seal of removal, yeah. right? With with some damage built in. Um, fundamentally, this is three mana. Destro- it's a three mana. Uh, destroy an artifact or enchantment mm-hmm. without the benefit of being easy to cast so that you can sneak it in immediately and then <laughs> and then get the benefit right yeah with so um it's like why would you play uh was it called seal of remove seal of uh, cleansing mm-hmm. over disenchant back in 2000 because you get it into play mm-hmm. and your opponent can't, can't do anything about it and then you can like kill their illusions as they're trying to donate it yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um this just doesn't have that that advantage. There's really no reason you would play this over a Kasali Pride Mage or an Ancient Grudge. Um, it, and, and the first ability isn't enough to compensate for the additional cost of the second. Mm-hmm. So what you're saying is each half of this has relevance in certain matchups, and in each case it's too watered down to be worth it in that matchup, and the presence of the second ability doesn't make up for it. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. I, I couldn't really put it any better than that. The, uh, the it also the mana cost being so restrictive up front versus say ancient grudge is really a liability against shops and the fact is if you wanted to be aggressive and like play this on turn one if you're lucky to have the moxen but turn two realistically you're not only opening yourself up to getting wastelanded because you're almost certainly one of these is going to be a dual land but you're also opening yourself up to getting revoked right yep because this is a permanent with an activated ability yeah <laughs> and, and built in built in weakness to phyrexian revokers is really i can't i think the death knell for this <laughs> how how good do you think this is against outcome like if you cast it on turn two against outcome do they just ignore it and plow through you 
they can they can readily win a, with only casting nine spells, right? Yeah. Well, the first thing I'm trying to imagine is: it, does the outcome deck have tendrils in it? If it, if it does, then the all the outcome deck player has to do is just play a mini tendrils, and then and then mm. and then you will tendrils. Yeah. Um. If they don't have tendrils, I think it's a little bit more difficult. They have to basically tinker for Colossus, Key Vault, or Mentor, which is still they have a lot of options, right? I guess. Key Vault is taken out by the second <laughs> ability. It's interesting, actually. I, if you tapped out the play, they can still Key Vault through it, of course. Yeah, I think this is actually much better against PO than against um, Xerox. Yeah. But I don't think it's quite good enough. Yeah. The, similar to our comments about Lavinia, this costs like 2.5 mana, as we've discussed before, which means it's not a real reliable turn two play against Outcome. Which means if you push it to turn three, it's it's definitely not good enough. It's worth noting that, yeah, Outcome is the kind of deck that wants to play a lot of spells. This card specifically punishes the kind of draw where they need to chain together two or three outcomes. It makes that sequence impossible near the end. Mm. But also... But it doesn't stop them from just going overwhelming to start with and then repealing this. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. A lot of Outcome decks have inherent ways to sidestep this, as you've already observed. And so, and if you just want to play it on turn three with a mana up to, to kind of get a little incidental damage and then weaken one of their outcomes, it, you're, it's way overcosted for that kind of middling effect. If there was already a deck in Vintage that was really heavily red-green, that was kind of a damage-based aggro control kind of archetype, this would feel great. The rug decks in Vintage are not red-green decks, right? <laughs> they're, no. they're either blue-red decks they're, they're blue-red decks, basically. There's getting upside from the green, and as such, their flexibility from their mana in that respect is one of the reasons why they can survive against shops, and all the effects they have are better and faster than this against uh, outcome. Yeah, I'm inclined to go zero with Cinder Vines, but I acknowledge that at some alternate point in vintage past, present, or future, <laughs> if there was a deck that really was much more heavily red-green, this would card would get a lot more attractive. That's a fair point. So it may be a card that you just tuck away for a future reference mm-hmm. <laughs> someday. Exactly. Next, we have Emergency Powers. Ooh. Five white blue. That's five white blue. Instant, which is really strange that this is an instant. Each player shuffles their hand and graveyard into their library, then draws seven cards. Exile Emergency Powers. Addendum. If you cast this spell during your main phase, you may put a permanent card with converted mana cost 7 or less from your hand onto the battlefield. So we got a 7 mana time twister that if you play it as a sorcery, you can put a permanent that costs 7 or less right into play. <laughs> we what have to discuss thing. this. <laughs> so I, I acknowledge that the, the mana cost, I mean, one of our one of our listeners and followers requested that we discuss this. So we have to address the fact that seven mana is way outside the norm for any kind of vintage playable. Yawgmoth's Bargain is one of the most broken cards, permanence, engines ever. And it's fringe playable in vintage because it costs six mana. And that's only in one color. That's not pyroblastable. This card's an instant. So yes, you could potentially maneuver yourself into a situation where your opponent's tapped out and you resolve it. That's just talking about resolution. I mean, the, the notion of getting any seven mana spell onto the stack in Vintage requires serious commitment. In order to maximize subsequently the addendum here, which is the only real reason to, to play this card, because the other effect you can get for three to five mana already, 
you would have to have a deck that was filled, not filled with, that had a certain density of permanents that were even worth putting into play. And those permanents need exclude things like Moxin, which you could have just cast anyway, things like Snapcaster Mage, which it'd be really hard to maximize after you've tapped out for seven, and a handful of other incidental things. You're really limited to just big creatures, which is, I think, a disaster waiting to happen, and um, Planeswalkers. Stack fade and chase the mind sculptor at all and monastery mentor i suppose but you're asking for your mentor to get removed since you just gave your opponent seven cards i think the deck that could best make use of this card is oath of druids because you've got an inherent presence of expensive creatures so that's one thing Good point um the trick with that is that gristle brand costs eight and as such gristle brand is excluded from this addendum that's pretty backbreaking if you want Definitely. to build your Oath deck with no Gristle Brands in it just to um, ex- exercise your emergency powers, then I think you're I think you're <laughs> customizing the wrong end of the spectrum there. Now, this card does work quite well with uh, Yawgmoth's Bargain, but then again, so does Academy Rector this, and This is basically, <laughs> I, let's stop talking about how we can play this. This is a card that can only be played with Omniscience, in my opinion, and it's pretty powerful if you play it there. Mm-hmm. The problem is that, that it the clause that the converted mana cost seven or less is the problem. That's really the problem. Yeah, because, it, because all the sexy cards you want to put in off omniscience. <laughs> yes. Oh, also, once you have omniscience, the addendum doesn't do anything. If you want to play a right, <laughs> if you want to play, if you want to play a uh, um, uh, um, make this cute, you could play this with dream halls or something. I suppose. Yeah. A cute I, casual deck. That's not I, a vintage playable deck. I just realized what I said wasn't strictly speaking true with. If you cast this with Omniscience, the card you put in is effectively uncounterable, so that's something. But but basically, you're much better off just having a cheaper draw spell that's good, that's, that gets a little better once Omniscience is in play. Yeah, I think that it's it's too unrealistic to expect to cast this card the fair way, and the interactions that involve cheating this card are much better served with other cards. Okay. Next, let's talk about Dovin Grand Arbiter. One white-blue, legendary Planeswalker Dovin, starting loyalty of three. Plus one, until end of turn, whenever a creature you control deals combat damage to a player, put a loyalty counter on Dovin Grand Arbiter. Minus one, create a 1-1 colorless Thopter artifact creature token with flying, you gain one life. Minus seven, look at the top ten cards of your library, put three of them into your hand, the rest on the bottom in a random order. So plus one, he gets additional loyalty until end of turn every time you damage someone with a creature. Minus one, Thopter in one life. And minus seven, a super dig through time. <laughs> I like this card in the sense that it, for three mana, it it's self-perpetuating. Now, it's slow. <laughs> but if you have no other resources and you play Dovin, you can still just make the Thopter. And then next turn, if you plus him, he goes back to three, but then the Thopter hits and he goes to four, right? Yep. And then the next turn, if you plus him, he goes to five, Thopter hits, he goes to six, right? The the one Thopter is actually materially affecting his plussing ability thereafter. It only takes like one other creature to make his plussing go up pretty fast. There's no such thing as a heavy creature-based deck in Vintage that wants to be casting this kind of three-mana walker right now. The humans decks, for example, probably couldn't even put this onto the stack thanks to Cavern of Souls. Uh, that I'm being I'm being glib, but they don't want to try to, right? Um, but you could adjust your mana base 
in a, in a deck kind of like Saffron Olive's Esper deck from VSL to m- facilitate casting this a little bit better. So that's something. The trick is, is that those decks don't really maximize the dig through time effect very well. But then again, I guess there's really nothing wrong with just simply drawing th- the best three cards in the top 10. That still gives them good juice. I don't know. I would like to try this deck, this card as the kind of the top end of a Esper or five color humans kind of curve and see how it goes. But my prediction is that those decks require such a density of quality cards. Yes. That you, it's really hard to, to take turn three or turn two maybe to commit a card like this to the board that has so yeah. no disruptive impact. I think that's really the key is that all the planeswalkers that see play right now, you, once you've invested in it, you get some immediate benefit that, yeah. that, co- that co- covers your bet, so to speak. Yeah. You know, so, so even if you lose the planeswalker, the investment has been worth something. Unfortunately, this, all this does is it asks you to take another bet on the car investment you've already made. Yeah. Right. And it's like, <laughs> <laughs> that's a good, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. You're doubling down on your creatures and, and the planeswalker. And yeah. And then even if you, even if you got Dovin all the way to seven loyalty on your, the turn you played it, like you had four creatures in play, you're still not getting any payoff until you get to exactly. minus it next turn. And in the modern vintage format, that's, that's still potentially too slow. So even if this was dig through time with suspend zero, you'd have to have the four creatures, right? But even then, it's not going to be good enough sometimes. Yep. That's overstating things a little bit. I would definitely play dig through time, suspend zero. But this that requires a ton of setup to make it that card. And the fact that this doesn't disrupt your opponent in any way, I think, is a, is a, big, a big mark against Death it. Death knell, yeah. yeah. All right, I'm going to go with zero. I do know that Matt Murray put together a Dovin deck for fun and tested it on his stream, but I don't know what his conclusion was. How'd he do? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I didn't hear anything more about it, so the answer is probably not very well. Okay. All right, we've come to the end. Last but not least, Kaya, Orzov Usurper. One white-black legendary planeswalker Kaya, starting loyalty of three, plus one. Exile up to two target cards from a single graveyard. You gain two life if at least one creature card was exiled this way. Minus one. Exile target non-land permanent with converted mana cost one or less. Minus five. Kaya Orzov Usurper deals damage to target player equal to the number of cards that player owns in exile, and you gain that much life. I love the fact that they're pushing the design envelope with three mana walkers and these, these pair of cards. This card is really interesting. It has an advantage over Dovin in that she actually affects the board. She can actually remove a permanent. The trick is that in Vintage, with scant few exceptions, there's not many one-mana permanents that see play that you <laughs> that can even target. And so you, your targets are almost exclusively going to be zero-mana permanents, which is about 80 to 90% accelerance, Moxin, and then the occasional uh, workshop creature that has converted mana cost of zero. She's an okay answer to a walking ballista, but she's going to trade one for one most of the time. She's a great answer to a hangerback walker. Well, it depends on it depends on. Uh, yeah, I guess you're right. I mean, swords the plowshares is still a better yeah. answer against hangerback, but she she matches up very well against hangerback walker that has not been destroyed. But as soon as you factor in the notion of a, a arcbound ravager or something, then she pales just like any other removal spell for three mana. <laughs> Her. Uh, and the the real trick here, though, is that her plus one ability is so narrow right. and uh, difficult to even fashion into disruption that it's just not, it's just so not even worth the trouble. It, it's really not. I mean, basically, if you're going to be playing this, you're going to probably tick her down to one before you start plusing uh-huh. her again. That's so, true. So you'll so the first activation is what going to hit <laughs> their best what? mocks. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's going to hit their best mocks. Unless it's the workshop matchup and there happens to be a juicy ballista or hangerback walker sitting there, it's going to hit their best mocks. She's real good against Deathrite Shaman, but that's Deathrite Shaman and Sensei's Divining Top. What other one mana permanents are played in this format? Noble Hierarch, Fringe. Deathrite Shaman, you said. Yeah. Um, yeah, there aren't, this aren't a lot. No. And, uh, and she doesn't do anything against top. So really, right. Like I said, yeah, you're looking at hot, probably high nineties. She's going to remove a mox with her first activation. <laughs> and so, which means that she pales powerfully in comparison to Dak Faden at that. <laughs> right? Jeez. Dak Faden is so much better at addressing that first mox than she ever I will think, be. I think this version of Kaya is worse, worse than the other one. Yeah, I do. I think the four mana Kaya is actually more interesting and powerful, but I don't know. That's what you get for paying one more mana. Yeah, this card is cool. It's got a fun design. Oh, let's talk about its disruptive elements against Dredge, just so we address that. Do you think that as part of a larger package of disruptive elements against Dredge that she could be useful? Meaning if no. you play Cage on one and then her on two, is that, does that matter? Removing up to two cards yeah. is not even remotely <laughs> powerful enough. <laughs> not even close. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that I said play cage on one. It's Graf sorcerer's feed. Yeah. I know, I know. But Graf Digger's cage is obviously the one mana permanent that's most popular in vintage. Is she useful as a sideboard card for decks that are facing cage? Obviously not dredge. Could she be sideboard card for oath no. to remove cages? No. You uh no. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're right. She's just if she had an ability that could be strategically useful, not just tactical. Then, like, like generating the wolf tokens, like that one thing does, maybe. Yeah, Arlen Cord. Yeah, but she just doesn't do enough. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, if your opponent doesn't have Cage, they can kind of forget that she exists. Because if you, I mean, her her, her base uh, on an empty board, if she you play her, she goes to three. You've exiled two cards. You exile two more cards. She's up to. F- I'm sorry. You play her. She goes to three to four. Two more cards. Four to five. You've exiled four cards with her. There's no way it's worth ultimating her just to do four damage to your opponent. I agree. Which means you're going to have to plus her again just to get to six, just to ultimate her and keep her around still to do six damage. It's just, it's just not, it's not anything. It's not there. She needs a, a home where she can tactically disrupt your opponent incrementally with her plus and also have the damage matter in the long run, which means some kind of deck that's still trying to kill with damage. I would say Esper humans, but she's, um, She's just too slow to be disruptive there. It's just not it's just not right. If the format ever evolved away from mental misstep, either through banded restricted action or some other strange thing, and one mana permanence became normal again, you know, <laughs> goblin welder right. maybe. If we right. got back to a goblin welder format, we might be talking yeah. about something. If this was a if this really was a one mana permanent it really reveals just that vintage is not a one mana permanent format. It's just not. Yeah. Yeah, completely right. Boy, she's really good against Goblin Welder because she removes the Welder and the targets. <laughs> Either way, the plus and the minus are good against Welder. Yeah, she's really got one over on that particular card, but we're a long way away from that format. Well, here we are, Steve, at the end of our review for Ravnica Allegiance, and I want to review what we've predicted. We Definitely. predicted a ton of play for Lavinia Azorius Renegade. You predicted 18, I predicted 20. The next most common, <laughs> in fact, the only other card that we predicted play for from this set is Sphinx of Insight. You predicted four, I predicted six. So I've taken the over by two on both of these. Our report card is going to be short but sweet when it comes time to review well, these we results. Have, well, there are two amazing cards in this set. Yeah, And agreed. two cards yeah. that are really require deep analysis. 
And um, Lavinia's impact is going to be incredibly broad and deep. Possibly and for the with, rest of time. <laughs> yeah, with, inc- with incredible knock-on effects, collateral effects. Um, and, uh, and, and, and Sphinx has incredibly deep implications for Dredge. Mm-hmm. And potential implications for the future of the format as well. It's just a card. Like, think about it. Serum Powder existed for three years before before it became relevant, right? I wow. mean, it, it wasn't until Dread Return was printed that Serum Powder became a thing. So, you know, you never know with a card like this. Agreed. Very good comparison. Well, we definitely want to hear from you, our listeners, as to what you think about the impact of this set on this format. Lavinia seems somewhat obvious, but maybe you have a slightly different take. And maybe the impact of Sphinx of Foresight inspires something else in you than what we than what we analyzed here. So please let us know. Thank you for listening to episode 87 of So Many Insane Plays. You can tweet us at Many Insane Plays or email us at So Many Insane Plays Podcast at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to rate us on iTunes so that other Magic players can find our show. As always, and until next time, we wish you Many Insane Plays. Ha, 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 ha.